This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great day so far. Uh, it is Thursday, officially, if you're keeping score. Which means one more day till Friday and then big Saturday football with a lot of big games coming up. And hurricane coverage. Holy Irma. That'll be be the pregame. Yeah. You know what? Uh, They're lining up apparently, aren't they? Irma is about when? Friday, tomorrow. Supposed to hit Florida. Is that right? Something like that. Well, the Keys. Ah, the Keys. Have you been to the Keys? No, I have not. Ah, beautiful. Beautiful place. Little bridge to an island, bridge to an island, like overpass yeah. to an island, overpass to an island. You can just be driving and you feel like all, you, all you'll see is ocean on both sides of you. Incredible. And now it's going to be soaked and torn. Mm. Ah! Well, we're praying for you. That's, that's Irma. We've been making fun of Irma's name for years, feels like. Just yesterday. Is that all? Yeah. Wasn't there somebody at your class reunion named Irma? Yeah. Do you remember Irma Bombeck? No. Mm-mm. No, really? Mm-mm. Where have you guys been? Right here on planet Earth. Irma Bombeck was like, a, I think, a CBS personality that was great. And she, she'd just talk about life and funny things and family. and Like when? And now she has to live in a cave. When well, I was 10, not no. watching the news? No, no. Because you can live blissfully ignorant and just have a great life at that point? Really? Or should. Uh, she died in 96. Mm, yeah, that's like high school. She was a humorist eh. who received great popularity for her newspaper column. I think you'd have to be a humorist with the name Irma. Oh, she's great. But this is Irma with an E, not an I. Oh, well, mm. that makes, doesn't apply make, at all. So well, why are we having this conversation? Yeah. <laughs> no, Irma Bombeck. But okay. we were talking about I names for hurricanes. And- no, that was yesterday. Yeah, well, then you that's where we got into this. The so funny thing is, if, if you're listening to the show, it's crazy. just so you know, we're always in a stream of consciousness. It's usually the best way. Semi-consciousness. The sad thing is, our poor listeners, they have to try to catch up with us. We really should always be focused on them. A little insight into my life. Uh-oh. Comments I say here get back to my family. Yeah. Because they listen to the podcast occasionally. Yeah, of course. And uh, thanks, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, download on... Uh, what, Apple Podcasts and all your yeah. favorite podcast players. Um, but there's things I say that I have no recollection of ever saying. Oh, boy, yeah. No, we no. Jeff and I have been talking about that for years. And, and people want, like, detailed accounts of why we were talking about certain topics. Like, I have no mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. It's just something that came up. That's like me with every weekend. When I come in on Monday, how was your weekend? I have no idea what I did. You can't remember anything. I cannot remember. You you might want to focus on that. It's that whole goldfish effect. <laughs> yeah. We have that short attention span. Yeah, like 11 seconds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So live it up for 11 seconds. Today, by the way, uh, we're going to be talking about fatbergs. Mm. This is a topic we've had on the show for at least three years, I think. Few topics, when I see them scheduled, uh, receive a fist bump or kind of like a fist pump type yeah, of excitement. I was like, all right, bump. fatbergs. Yeah, fatbergs because – See, I introduced this to the show. Well, in fact, and many, many would call you the granddaddy of the fat bird. Well, on this show. <laughs> it's kind of gross. So what you do is you get a little fat or grease, mm-hmm. oil, whatever, what With have you, 
You pour it down your drain. Which people do even though you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to. And then somebody flushes a wipey. Or any other kind of debris at all. Yeah. Then you throw, I don't know, maybe some Q-tips in there. Yeah. And you have got the makings Con- of a fat bird. Contact cases in one mm-hmm. video I saw. And they really, <laughs> yeah, when it gross. congeals. It all kind of forms into a mass. And about a year later, you will have, I don't know, maybe a two-ton fat bird. The city has to go in with cranes and remove these things. It's a lot it's of gross. money. So we'll edit this together and we'll put it under your recipes tab on your website. Oh, yeah. I got, have I got a recipe for you? If you, if you follow along on Twitter for the next hour or so, there's a few videos that will pop up that yeah. will show you more detailed accounts of what these are. It really, and many would say, why, why, why are you doing this? Why? Are, in fact, I'm pretty sure in our next production meeting, people will say, why, why did you talk about Fatbergs? <laughs> and you know what? Our answer is, why not? Why not? They're impacting communities. Minnesota, somewhere in Minnesota, has been hit. Yeah. Denver's been hit. Denver. New York, New Jersey. Uh, New York, New Jersey. A lot of uh, – most of Europe. Big cities and then you have restaurants and they dispose of mm-hmm. this grease from their cooking into the sewer even yeah. though you're not supposed to do yeah, that. They do, do that. it because it's cheaper. I learned too uh, and, and we'll hear more about this from our guest. Uh, apparently there are thieves that go into fat traps mm-hmm. and steal the fat and then resell it on the market. There was a Simpsons episode where they're stealing <clears throat> grease – from the uh, elementary school. Yeah. yeah. That's what you got to do. In China, they might even steal fat from the fat traps and that are in the city, I guess, mm-hmm. and then use that fat to make your meal. Right. Because you can cook with this. It's, it's cook, just the cooking yeah. oil. There are also – there are groups trying to find ways to repurpose this mm-hmm. so that it can be used for fuel. Yeah. Either cooking or, you know, there's people that have uh, – Cars that they convert to to run on cooking oil. Mm-hmm. And so oh, yeah. there's some places where there's a market for no, that. No, I've, I've I've pulled up behind a car that does that. It smells like French fries. They, totally. The whole time I'm like, man, I'm craving French fries right now. So are you going to ask him how we can properly dispose of our fat? Yes. Okay. Isn't it ironic though that you as a, as the Western world is getting fatter, mm. gaining weight? Absolutely. So too are our sewers. Right. I mean, it's crazy. They're way out of shape. Fat in, fat out. <laughs> I think that's a yeah, that's a it's an engineering phrase. Garbage in, garbage out, fat in, fat out. Fat in with a wipey, fatberg out. There are listeners to the show that have greeted us by talking about fatbergs. Yeah. They've called the show. I've talked to them in the other room just off the air. They love a good Fatberg. Yeah. You're like, okay. That's what resonated with you on yeah. the show was Fatbergs. Well, it resonated with me too because it's yeah. – you want you actually – you emailed me one weekend and said, send me that link. I'm, I'm giving a speech and I want to mention Fatbergs. Totally. I don't know if you actually did that. No, I'm pretty but sure I did. I was I, like, well, hold on. And I like stopped everything. I told my wife, hold on. Hold I'm, on. Matt got, is in need of Matt, help here. Matt needs a Fatberg. <laughs> Wait a minute. You can't remember either. What? You can't remember what you said in your speech. No, I never. No. Well, he gives so many of them. So I, we all I have record. Hor- we all have horrible, horrible memories. I actually have a really good memory. What's or- the name of my show, Matt? Oh, Slim Pickens. <laughs> Slim Pickens with Jeff Simpson. It's every Friday. That's a good. That's Slim a- Whitman. No, it's another. Jim guy. Jim Slimmons. Sim Jim Dong Dims. Slimmons. <laughs> Grasping at straws. Not even close. 
Uh, by the way, we will be talking fatbergs. Nothing to do with Hillary Clinton's nothing burger. Right. Remember she kept saying that? Yeah. Had you ever even heard that phrase? No. I don't I there nothing, was a story it's a big, about fat nothing burger. There's a story about where that came from. It's yeah. kind of boring, but yeah, then Good. she kind of grabs onto it. And, yeah. But her, she's got a book out. Yeah. CNN read it all night. Apparently they purchased their own copy, read the book all night long so they could have breaking yeah. news in the breaking morning. News. And then it seems like no one's talking about it. No, it's just sort of You dying. know why? Because Irma. Yeah. This Irma. was coverage of somebody reading a book. <laughs> she's being upstaged by the hurricane. Yeah. Well, or maybe just downstage because maybe the book's no good. Meh. No, who, who knows? But Irma took on uh, Puerto Rico, I guess, overnight. And I have we'll, details. we'll get to the headlines of that. Plus, of course, empty news on the show. You won't believe it. Sometimes we like to talk about things that aren't even relevant to your human life. It's the information here on the show. Yeah. There may be some clown updates. <sighs> Lots, clowns, of, lots of clown-related issues Now that new back. movie with the clown, my son even said, I want to see that. And then I just grounded him right there. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no. no. It was a preemptive grounding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pre-ground. Mm-hmm. Sometimes <laughs> you got to just be proactive. We'll get to all of that fun straight ahead. But first, Terry South with the headlines. What's up? Hurricane Irma barreled through the Caribbean islands on Wednesday, destroying 90% of Barbuda, according to Gaston Brown, the prime minister of Antigua and Barbuda. An official from the country's Office of Disaster Services told ABC News that there was widespread damage across the island, which is home to 1,600 people. Irma made landfall as a Category 5 hurricane with sustained winds above 185 miles an hour. It's expected to hit Florida Saturday night. More than one million Puerto Ricans were cut off from power and communications Thursday as the monster hurricane skirted the island and moved towards the Dominican Republic. A large portion of the U.S. territory could be dark for as long as four to six months. At least 60,000 people on the island were without safe drinking water, as it is uh, largely dependent on the electrical Uh. supply. In total, the, the storm has killed 10 people that they know of. As the cleanup continues, we'll yeah, we'll find more. more. So, the Federal Emergency Management Agency is quickly depleting it, uh, quickly depleting its disaster relief funding with Category Five Hurricane Irma heading towards Florida. FEMA is scheduled to run out of money by Friday, just two days before Hurricane Irma is expected to hit Florida. Senator uh, Bill Nelson and Marco Rubio said this week in a joint statement. The devastation Harvey wrecked over the last two weeks in Texas ate up billions of dollars of funding, dropping it to uh, $1 billion on Tuesday. So, I, yeah, they're going to run out of money. And so more funding is needed. And they voted. There's more funding coming. But Ten fatalities concerned. in the Caribbean in a day. Yeah. Uh, and we lost, what, 50-plus in, in Houston. Right. In like weeks. So, I mean, this is, and these are tiny little islands. This is, there'll be a lot more than that. Sad. Right. Um, in other news, President Donald Trump sided with congressional Democrats on combining a Hurricane Harvey disaster relief package, an increase in the debt ceiling, and a government funding measure into one piece of legislation. Democratic leaders said Wednesday after a meeting with Trump at the White House. In the meeting, the president uh, and congressional leadership agreed to pass aid for Harvey, an extension of the debt limit, and a continuing resolution both to December 15th altogether, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi said in a statement. Both sides have every intention of avoiding a default in December and look forward to working together on many issues before us. House Speaker Paul Ryan, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin were reportedly opposed to such a short-term extension of the debt ceiling. It's only a three-month extension. They were yeah. looking for 18 months, a year, six eternity. months. Time and all eternity. The House overwhelmingly passed a $7.85 billion aid package for Harvey victims earlier on Wednesday, kicking it to the Senate. The majority 
Whip uh, told the uh, Daily, uh, or said on Tuesday that he would support combining at least two of those measures, Harvey Aid and the debt ceiling, into one piece. So what Trump did was he walked into a meeting. He had the Democratic leadership and the Republican leadership. Yeah. They both pitched their ideas, and then he sided with the Democrats, leaving the Republicans, as it says, shell shock. You'll yeah. see that written in many stories this morning. They are angered. Some uh, reporters are talking to other Republican members, and they can't repeat what's being said back to them as a response to Trump oh, siding with Democrats. Boy. So he has given the Democrats this huge win. Yeah. And, and many are saying this is more – I mean, now the Republicans will start next year probably without any big wins – uh, in their side, when they go to talk to their voters, their 20, and say he re- yeah, he for the 2018 me. election too. No. This is and everyone's like, is he going to even be partnering with Republicans in their own election? Right, because now he's got Democrats. Now this wouldn't be that bad of a deal, but he's turned off the entire GOP. It sounds like yes, but it's it, a lot of people are like, hey, they're working together. They're working together. But it's really President Trump works with the Democrats on part of this. And they're also saying, isn't it uh, going to set up more power for the Democrats? Yeah. But usually a funding measure like this, you wouldn't see. Yeah. You'd you side with see them on, let's make a deal on the hurricane funding, yeah. not the entire funding of the government. Right. <laughs> so it's it's an interesting move. We'll see Here what we the go. Republicans do with that. And finally, they were first we heard of snakes on a plane. There was oh, a yeah. movie about that. Mm-hmm. Now there are sharks in a basement. What? The New York City State Fire Department of Environmental Conservation announced Wednesday that it seized 10 sharks from an above-ground pool in a basement in LaGrangeville, New York, located in the Hudson Valley. Of the sharks, seven sandbar sharks were alive, and the remaining three sharks, two leopard sharks and a hammerhead shark, were dead. The sharks measured two to four feet in length, which would have made for tight quarters in a pool that measured just 15 feet in diameter. The sharks were transferred to a Long Island aquarium. So they walk in. This pool in someone's basement had 15 sharks in there. What? Ugh. How did what? they even not swim by, around? That's not, a lot of sharks. It's not by accident. Like in Houston, there's a lot of animals. Yeah, there's a lot of weird up. stuff in Houston. But uh, this is on purpose. Someone had a bunch of sharks and put them in a and pool. And I guess you just swim with hmm. them? I don't know if you did that or else you just use it kind of as a mini aquarium, except it's not equipped for that many animals. Yeah. There used to be more people that lived in that home. Apparently. Wouldn't the sharks be bigger if they were well-fed? Maybe they just had one swim party. Huh. Next thing you know, <laughs> there's just 10 sharks. So what happens? Did everyone just leave? There's I, just, I'm not, there was, how did they fi- – like, did somebody turn them in? The story had no details except the one I read was just the, just the fact that there were these sharks in a basement and they got them out. Yeah, those fish in that pool were huge. The details of how they got there, who the people were, that's probably elsewhere. So were they shark nappers? I do Unbelievable. But their sharks are safe. Well, the the ones that survived. Yeah, that's sad. Three of them died. A hammerhead shark. Oh, that's that's horrible. You know what? I've always felt bad for the hammerhead. Mm. Really? Yeah. I mean, if you could be any shark, you a hammerhead sounds cool, but they look ridiculous. Yeah. You got not that. to be rude. I'm not that. trying to be rude. Yeah. But their eyes are so far apart, too. Ooh, that is tough. But I have no sympathy for anything that could eat me that should not be eating me. It's hmm. a good point. Oh wow! Like I mean, if you got something gnawing on your leg, you're not going to be sympathetic. No. I mean, until you get your leg out, then well, you're going to be like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I hurt you." That's <laughs> <laughs> a really good point. Um, so this storm, I just can't believe it. It it's going to 
it's seriously going to impact the uh, East Coast, Southeast Coast. This is, it's a, I don't know. I just, we just went through this. And apparently there could be more coming. What do you do with 155 mile an hour winds? It's crazy. Totally crazy. Well, again, our prayers go out uh, with you. Maybe just listen to the show. You know, hunker down in the Bahamas. Just hunker down. Turn on Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. We'll get you through it. Because we're going to be talking about a problem you may not even be having on the islands. Hopefully. Fatbergs. Because both of those problems, oof, that would be horrible. Can you imagine? Fatbergs and a completely huge hurricane coming through. And sharks in your basement. And sharks in the basement. What a what a great uh, lineup we've got. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you through life one day at a time right here on BYU Radio. And we're back, folks. We're trying to get our guest, uh, Thomas Wallace, on the line. He is a, a researcher in uh, his Ph.D. program, I think, over in Ireland. And he's <laughs> – he. I mean, of all things you choose to research are fat bergs, right? <laughs> so he's probably out right now trying to chase down a fat berg. In fact, we were going to have him on the show a couple of uh, weeks ago, I believe it was. And he – that morning, his wife went into labor. Like right before the show, speaking of fatbergs, and um, it was the, it was he was unable to come on the show then. So now we're we're tracking him down all the way to Dublin, Ireland. But one of the things I wanted to talk about because as football season starts, as all the kids get back in school, parents start putting all their kids in different sports. And one of the uh, one of the things I really get frustrated with are parents who who uh, are pushing their kids from the sideline during a game mm. and like trying to coach their child to do their position and their job while they are out there just trying to survive. It's why I quit Little League when really? I was 11, year, 11 years old, not because of my parents, yeah. but just because there was so much mounting pressure to perform and if, you know yeah. you don't want to let anybody down because you know who hasn't uh, swung or yeah. struck and, out to end the game. That's right. Oh, yeah. I did that. I remember hanging my head in shame, being depressed. I've never done that, but um, (laughs) I I could see how that would happen. But I mean, and then you just crush this tiny little spirit, right? You can't, you can't do it. So, uh, parents, you got to be careful because in the end, it's these are your kids, right? These kids have to move on and and have uh, some form of self esteem, some uh, you know hope in their lives. So, I wanted to talk about. what some rules for parents? If you're sitting on the sideline, the right way to push, maybe the wrong way to push. Here's some rules for you, and it's really the goal is to become um, a good to have good sportsmanship. Really, okay. So number one, you got to start with what's called a commitment contract. There's a um, a child psychologist, actually a sports psychologist named Dr. Patrick Kahn, who suggests that you start the new year with your kids with a contract. So when they go start a new sport, sit down with them, have a really in-depth discussion about the about the sporting event, about the practices, and really see if they're going to commit. 
and then draw up a contract. Does my lawyer need to be present? Yeah. If you have a lawyer or if your child has a lawyer, you would want them present to, to have this contract. <laughs> and you'll need it notarized and you'll want to initial in all the right places. But one of the keys that he, I always need those little sticky arrows to know where to sign. Yeah, because you never know. Yeah, should yeah. I sign here or sign, sign here? But what if you started with a contract and you sat down and you said, okay, what are your goals out of this year? Why are you doing this? Now, if they're six years old, they may not need goals except you may want the child to learn to – uh, you know, let's just have the goal of standing through your whole soccer match, your whole soccer game. Let's stand. Let's not do any sitting down this year. Let's just stand. Or you might set other goals for uh, they, maybe they just want to be more social. Maybe they want more friends. So you could have social goals. And what the goal would be in the end is is to sit down, spend some time with them, and actually you know, line out what they want out of the program. No, by the way, the older they get, they could have their own specific goals. Like this time I really want to make the starting team or this time I really want to do whatever. Don't push their goals. Let them do it. But also bring up other stuff like I don't want to hear you complaining about practice. I know you're going to because every year that you've played, you end up complaining about it. So part of what I'd love to see in the contract is that we don't complain about practice. We just go. We always go to practice without a complaint. And you can make that part of the contract. And then at the very end, both of you sign it and you've already had the discussion. And then I'd hang it up on the fridge. Hmm. Make sense? Because you know they're going to check the fridge. Well, you know, yeah, they're always going to be near the fridge. So make a contract about every new year. And what it forces you to do as a parent is to end up getting a – Getting some agreement, some some of your expectations managed. Another thing to make sure you do as a parent is put yourself in their shoes. What's it like to have you as their father on the sideline during their game? And I've had I've had kids that were embarrassed because their dad was yelling crazy stuff and getting in fights. And I've had kids that were embarrassed uh, that I've worked with whose dads were being too nice. And they were embarrassed because the other dad was like, hey, to the team that they were killing, good job, you guys. You're doing really great out there. <laughs> and, it's, and so know your child and put yourself in their shoes. How do they feel when you're always out there yelling at them, telling them what to do? Think about it from their p- position. Also, make sure you're focusing on optimism and positivity because uh, the research does show the more that you point out of what's good that they're doing, the more good they're going to do. You can't usually change a negative behavior by talking about it negatively. Instead, you change a negative behavior by pointing out what they should do. So give more and more examples of what it looks like to do it right and uh, help them see when they are doing it right. Make sure you're catching every time, every situation that they're doing it right. Also, try to respond from love, not their performance. A lot of times our responses are based on what they just did, what they, how they just performed. And if they perform negatively, we respond negatively. But instead, it might serve us all if we would just identify love, what our, feel the love first, then do the critique, right? If you're going to have to critique, and you have to give feedback, but if you're doing it from love, it won't feel like, like a, it won't feel as harsh as if you're doing it from um, some other source. And then let the kids take regular ba- breaks. These are kids for heaven's sakes. Let them have a break. Mercy. Anyway, a lot of good stuff. Uh, we love the kids and we want them to have a healthier you know, opportunity when they're playing sports. But don't get in the way. The parents should not be the problem. So anyway, we've got, uh, we've got Fatbergs up next. Thomas Wallace will be joining us. And we're going to uncover the blobs of fat that are filling up the sewers, folks. You're not going to want to miss this. Interesting insight up next on The Matt Townsend Show.
Every day we dispose of all kinds of things down the toilet, the shower drain, and the garbage disposal that all end up in our sewage system, a place that is beginning to get a little bit crowded down there. The fat, oil, and grease, or fog as some people call it, that we put down the drain will combine with other drifting items like flushable baby wipes or, you know, Q-tips um, that lead up to, to a buildup of fat in the sewage system. And these blobs or these accumulations of fat are, uh, are what are s- sometimes referred to as fatbergs. And they can cause a lot of damage. And we've joked about them on the show, but it may not be a real laughing matter when it comes to having to pull, I don't know, a 15-ton huge iceberg, fatberg out of your sewage system, it can be very costly. So here to talk about it is Thomas Wallace, who is working on a research master's at the University College of Dublin Dublin, on the development of the National Strategy for Recovery and Utilization of Fat, Oil, and Grease, FOG, and uh, uh, Waste from Food Service Outlets. Thomas, thank you again for being with us. I know we've... Uh, We've interrupted your life many times to do this segment. Thanks for ha- thanks for being here again. Thanks for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. You bet. So talk to us, Thomas, about, first of all, why on earth, what drove you personally to want to study fat and fatbergs? Um, I guess from a personal stance, um, like anyone, I went to university and um, studied environmental science and... Um, from that point of view, you study a wide spectrum of things. A lot of it can be um, you know, possibly seen as tree hugger type things of studying grass and water analysis and looking at the animals. But I guess the part that really um, appealed to me was urban sustainability, about looking at what we do day to day and what we can do to improve it from source control, little things that we can do around the house to stop the bigger issues like you know, blockages or water pollution, all that kind of thing. So it's all about like um, looking at the day-to-day within a city or a town or even a house and what the small changes you can make to stop the big implications down the road. Now, this is, I mean, is this a new problem? And I guess explain the fat, oil, grease, the fog problem um, that leads to fatbergs. Okay, well, I suppose first off, in regards to being a new problem, it really isn't. Um, the, you know, when you look at the research papers and mentions of it across the years, um, like one of the first mentions of it was back in um, a New York symposium in the 1940s where yeah. they detailed how sewer blockages because of fat were an issue then, and it was like, what can we do to alleviate this? And no, you know, no real decision was made then, and no real decision has been made now in regard to, um, um, I guess, when you think about fat, oil and grease, and I'm, I'm sure you and a lot of your listeners, what you might think of is, you know, a frying pan after you cook a steak or, you know, after eggs and bacon in the morning and pouring that down the drain. But really, it, it, that's the bigger side of it. Um, it, there is natural fat cells and grease and free fatty acids in in all types of um, washing you do. So even the residue in the likes of a coffee cup, a dairy-rich coffee cup like your lattes and cappuccinos, that would still be a type of fat cells mm. and grease. And it's all this residue from every spectrum, from domestic to obviously the bigger side with your food production and your food businesses. It all goes into a drainage system and sewer system that we're all connected to. So every single drop of it over days and weeks and years adds up and just builds up in sewers that, 
you know, in Ireland here, some of the sewers age back to the 1850s. I'm sure in the US, a lot of them are similar and they haven't been updated a lot over that length of time. Mm. And they're not designed for a, the population that's currently there or for this type of waste going down in that kind of volume. And I guess, too, then you, you have all of that fat and then you add any more uh, tangible uh, kind of, I mean, like more like a you you add a stick you add a leaf you add anything else that has a little bit more fibrous makeup and all of a sudden you've created a real problem yeah exactly and in your intro there you mentioned about the the flushable wipes and and that side of things i guess that, that's the whole thing like the toilets are supposed to be for pee poo and toilet paper yeah. you know there shouldn't really be anything else going down there because again these sewer systems you know they're big they, they have a job to do to carry waste but it is very particular types of waste that anything more than water or the waste we previously discussed anything, anything more than that you will have issues because if the gradient reduces or the diameter of the sewer decreases naturally you know or if there's a bend in the pipe that's where your fat will start slowing down or the water will start slowing down the fat within the water mm in its small amount starts building up and like you said there everything from wet wipes which are kind of the big thing that are connected with fatbergs as well to you know um other toiletries to just general things that can go down the toilet which shouldn't you know nappies from creches some people think they should be flushed you know so a lot of things are kind of education with people that these shouldn't be going down the sewer in the first place because yeah. at some point you mightn't have the problem outside your door but 200 meters down the road where the pipe um, the pipe diameter decreases or there's a bend in it, they can have serious problems and you're just adding to it. So it's all about kind of us helping the problem down the, down the way. And then I guess, too, you add to that um, certain, you know, locations where they might have four or five um, shops or, uh, you know, places of business where they make food and they might be pouring or, or disposing of more and more grease. And then all of a sudden you get some really large fatbergs. What are the what what are the dimensions and sizes of a fatberg, and, and what's the biggest? What's what's a pretty normal one? Um, well, I guess they do vary in size, um, and I I suppose the whole thing is you don't want to see them. So like there there's no real smallest size of fatberg or anything like that. But in relation to the biggest ones, there's in the UK especially over the last um, 10 years, there's been reports of 15 tonnes and the size of 747s and double-decker buses. Like in Chelsea, a 10-tonne um, fatberg in 2015, a 15 tonne of fat in Kingston, again in the UK in 2013, and in 2014, again in the UK, because again, it's neighbours with us, so we see it more often, yeah. um, a fatberg which took four days to remove. And again, it's not uncommon in Northern Ireland. There was one reported there quite recently, which I think the... Um, the National Geographic article there that was released recently commented upon. So, like, again, that 15 tonne is huge. If you actually imagine the size oh. of that when they compare it to a double-decker bus, and I'm sure the imagery you were speaking yeah. to at the start, it's what people think of. But, again, this shouldn't be happening. It's the sewers aren't there to catch this waste. And if, it, if it's already hardened, it's too late at that point. So source control is the key to stop it from getting to that point, you know. And although that means removing it and dealing with kind of fat soils and grease at the start, it's the only way to stop it from going in the sewer because the manpower to go down there and remove that, like, you know, the time needed, closures of roads, you know, it affects the traffic, affects businesses in the area, odours can be released, vermin come in, um, sanitary sewer overflows, which is basically the wastewater from the sewer coming up through over 
the, the land into oh. the surrounding water bodies or into businesses. And we've seen all this. And again, it's it shouldn't be happening. The sewer system is there to get the waste away, not to be blocked by fatbergs. And I guess the one thing just to state is like when we talk about fat soils and grease and fatbergs, fatbergs are the accumulation of everything. So it's unlikely that 10 tons is all fat. Yeah, right. The, the other waste as well, including, you know, calcium from the pipes and from um, the free fatty acids and that kind of thing. But still, even if it's a ton of fat, it's still a huge amount to be dealing with. Well, I mean, and the, yeah, it, these are, they're kind of fragile systems anyway, because mm. a tree could grow into the system and block stuff. But yeah, the, root, I, yeah, uh, the roots of the tree. So I'm wondering, I guess in the end, like you're saying, this is about humans that aren't disposing of uh, certain things in the proper way. Are there laws against this? I mean, it seems like I grew I grew up in a house where if you ever poured fat down the drain, you would die. Like it was a, it was a major violation of life. And that's my grandma taught my mom that my mom taught me that you just don't do it. But I guess some don't get that message. Yeah, yeah. Um... I guess from a, a legal point of view, and again, when you're talking legislation internationally, it changes country to country. Um, but yeah, legally, from from a restaurant point of view, you're, when you think about the large bulks of used cooking oil, it would be in deep fat fryers, you know, where yeah. fries or chips, if you're over here, are called, um, yeah. where you fry them in bulk. You know, you're talking 40, 50 litres of oil in any of those containers, but that would usually be collected by the haulier you'd buy it off because there's a value to that where it can be converted into biodiesel. So it's rare enough um, a site will get that and pour it down the drain because there's systems in place for the collection of it. But um, in regard to, like, the smaller amounts like the residue in the frying pans and all that kind of thing you know if people aren't really aware that it shouldn't be going down there mm. and I'm, I'm sure over the years we've all worked in restaurants or bars where a chef is screaming at you to clean some plates and you're not going to take two minutes to scrape something into the bin you're going to wash it down the drain and unfortunately when you're talking serving 100 customers and 100 plates or 100 cups and 10 more places beside you doing the same trade this sewer that's been there for 150 years <laughs> with a diameter that can't take that waste it will congeal so like from um in dublin and i guess what our research is looking at um here in university college dublin is about you know stopping that waste going in but not having the knock on that you just stop it and throw it somewhere else so in Dublin, there's um, a fat soils and grease trade effluent program in place since 2008 across the city where all food service establishments would be inspected frequently in regard to these best management practices of not pouring the waste down the drain and then having um, grease trapping equipment in place, which would be grease traps or grease interceptors that your sinks would be connected to, which would um, hold the bits of food and the fat soils and grease in place and just let the clean water discharge into the drain. But obviously then they have to be maintained, they have to be pumped out and that kind of thing. So there is an inspection process in, in place in, in Dublin and other areas where um, inspectors come in and ensure that these are being um, complied with to remove the, the waste from going into the sewers. Mm. Again, we're speaking with Thomas Wallace, uh, who is working on a research master's at the University College of Dublin. And uh, he's actually quickly becoming the the czar of um, fatbergs. <laughs> I don't know if that's good. I just made that up for you, Thomas. But it may not be what your your end goal is. Um, it really is it's, – it's about social responsibility too, it sounds like, because there's the grease side kind of – and it almost seems like maybe a lot of the problems might be um, – 
it, it's just education maybe that we need to inform everybody and that's one reason why we wanted to do this. So other things we, we also need to be careful of are the wipies are any, anything else that's going down. You're saying really all that should go out down the toilet are bodily fluids and uh, solids and um, water okay. runoff. Yeah, that's really it. And toilet um, paper, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of um, um, local authority or amenity um, education campaigns would be simple uh, agit- or simple campaigns like bin it, don't think it, you know, mm. especially around um, the likes of Thanksgiving and Christmas where we all go en masse to one house and cook for about 20 people and decide that the turkey fat is going to go down the drain. You yeah. know, um, when ideally, you see all this fat, and I, and I guess this is, if you look at any kind of um, waste control, it, it, it's this kind of definition of what a waste is and is there value to it. And as soon as something's dumped, it's waste. But it is this thing that a lot of it can be used. Um, and I mentioned earlier about the used cooking oil being used for biodiesel. But the same for, for a lot of these fats from, you know, from the chickens and the resi- or from the tur- turkeys and the residues. Like if you gather up that fat, it can be converted into biogas and biodiesel. Like it is just a case of getting the systems and structures in place where it can be collected by the, the adequate companies to be utilized properly as opposed to just us seeing it as waste throwing it down the drain and it causing problems for us as well and you're just adding you know more upon more on it and years of waste just gather and at some point it will just block like um like a lot of the examples that are used in comparison with these is your body and the arteries in there that if you keep eating fatty foods they will block up and you'll have a heart attack and right. that's really what the fat perk is you know it is the heart attack it's the body the infrastructure of the city, the sewers is the bloodstream, and it's the body telling you, "Look, you need to do something here, or I'm going to die." You know, I will um, kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you see it when you remove ten tons of waste out of us. Mm. Is it because um, it, it's funny? Because we have, like, in the United States, we have recycling days where you can put out your the the, the stuff that needs to be recycled. Some people are composting. Do we need to have? A fat do, do cities need to provide for their people a, like a fat recycling where a bin where they just put their fat? Um, probably not to the degree that the recycling bins are in place. And that I do think that um, I, I think it, the the type of way that we eat, especially over the last few years, we're we're so health conscious lately that even deep fat fryers, I'd say, are uncommon in a lot of houses. Yeah. So the the oil you're talking about would be the residues from the frying pans and you could be talking take a week to make a litre or two litres but what some areas have I know here in Dublin um, there'd be amenity centres where you can just build up the waste over a few weeks yourself bring it there and just dispose of it through the local authorities that you know you do have to drive down there and bring it but as opposed to having a bin that could take a year to fill up just build it up yourself and especially over the big holidays where you'll produce a lot of waste bring it down there but what a lot of people do is just put it into the compost waste but again it's better than going down the sewer 100% put in the bin but just um, again I suppose if there is an option to get it to that next level of, of making it into something using it utilising it you want to upcycle any any stream that's there and it adds a value to it and removes more and more waste because you know you've read the articles and people I'm sure have seen the reports of landfills filling and you know we have to stop waste from going there so there's no point removing it from one spot and throwing it somewhere else because then you'll just have someone on the phone on about another issue 
right. rat waste attracting more rats to land. That's right. You know, because, so it's all about getting that sweet point, point where, you know, A, people have to live their lives. And restaurants are the same, that they can't be there controlling every drop of oil that's going out there, but there needs to be systems there to, to help them control it. And again, in Dublin and some other areas, stuff like soft, um, smart software approaches where they can sign up to to programs and websites and apps that will um, kind of contact the FS, food service establishments and contact the hauliers and be one-stop shops to kind of, you know, remove the waste properly. I think Swift Comply are one of these companies that like um, supply one of those services and it kind of removes some of the onus on the food service establishment because, again, you have a business to run and fat size and grease are just one you know, right. one, um, one side of it, like, you know. And it's, I mean, what's great is there's a market for it. And mm-hmm. so it seems like, you know, with, with the food uh, service outlets, that's easy to monetize. So there'll be mm-hmm. companies servicing it. It's just the, the the families, the regular homes in the town, in the city, we need to somehow figure out how to educate them. Thomas, as we wrap it up, what, uh, what advice do you give the rest of us uh, to make sure, I mean, obviously don't, flush what shouldn't be flushed um any other insight that or any other motivation that we could be looking for that might help us take this more seriously um my advice is to i guess a if you're kind of thinking this is no big deal just go online google fatberg and and see what an issue can be and um I, I think one of the, the main things, because education awareness are the foundation for all this, um, but obviously go at, to, at Fog Waste on Twitter, have a look at that, that'll be our, our research connections there, but really it's um, it, it, the sewer isn't this out of sight, out of mind um, magic hole in your kitchen where waste goes and you never have to think about it again. <laughs> it is there for certain things and just, you know, even if it's things like go online, print off one page about what should go down the toilet, what should go down your sewer, and, and just keep that in mind and really bring it up with your kids and get everyone on the same line because um, with, with our research here in UCD and my, um, one of our, my, research, um, my research manager, um, Tom Curran, he's, going, he's currently being awarded the Fulbright thing. He'll be, um, mm. he'll be working with the um, University of North Carolina and it is this research that's there about fatbergs and improving the sewers and it's there because we can all improve it and it's just up to all of us just to remove as much waste as possible from the sewer systems and just put it in another waste stream and hopefully recycle it to a point where it starts getting a value. We start getting bioplastics and bioenergy out of it. So just day by day, just try and improve it. That's all you can do. Good stuff. Good stuff, Thomas. Thank you so much for all of your time, your insights. Good luck to you and your new your new baby as well and your wife. We hope she's doing well. Uh, awesome insight. I mean, you don't think about it. It's... It's it's pretty fragile, and I think that is why I grew up. I think somebody in my family somewhere flushed too much, or didn't flush, but uh, poured dr- fat down the drain, and it clogged the pipes on their property, and they had to take out all those pipes. And you do that once. If you have to like take out the pipes from your house to the main sewage line, you're never going to fat, or uh, you're never going to flush fat again. She's not. You're not going to allow it. So uh, don't go through that. Imagine if you had to go down yourself. When you look at these crazy fatbergs, to just look at them, it's the most disgusting thing you'll ever see on Earth. So uh, anyway, be careful. Remember, we're all in it together. Careful what you flush. 
A little advice from the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be uh, talking uh, more empty news straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Well, from fat bergs to bullied kids, uh, how would you, you know, if you're bullied at school, what better way to uh, to overcome that than to have 50 motorcycle bikers escort you to school? How cool would that be? On your on their Harleys, 50 bikers pull up and walk the bullied kid who was an 11-year-old boy. Phil Mick has reason to smile. A new group of unlikely friends showed up. More than 50 bikers escorted the 11-year-old to his first day at DeKalb Middle School in Waterloo, Indiana. Sounds like our hero story. It's a total hero story. His mom, Tammy Mick, said the bike ride was the first time she'd seen him smile in a long time. She said he was bullied in his elementary school for the last two years. But then (laughs) 50 bikers show up. Uh, They would call him fat. These boys, these kids would call this boy fat, cussing at him, hitting him in his private areas. Uh, Mick, the mother, um, told CNN. And in fact, it got to a point that the boy wanted to end his life. So Mm. Phil's new friends decided to uh, help the kid get through this. And um, about a year ago, Phil's mom noticed he had bruises all over him. He would tell me, "Oh, I fell or something," but really, he was being he was being bullied. So then, uh, these this group of bikers decided this can't happen anymore, um, and gathered together. They all show up, and that if you've ever heard fifty Harleys, that's a pretty loud yeah. noise. And they all pull <laughs> up one by one, and uh, what do you know? It, it ended up uh, being. By the way, um, Brent Warfield was the director of the United Motorcycle Enthusiasts. Um, and through an event to help pair low-income families with Christmas presents, Warfield gave Phil his very own bicycle. Now the sixth grader loves to build and would like to work on cars someday. So that gift was right up his alley. And uh, they decided that they were going to get him a ride. So they picked him up that morning on the motorcycle uh, around 6 a.m. Warfield had uh, put out a call on social media to get as many riders as possible. And this is this was the thing that Brent Warfield put out. Bullied kid escort to his first day of school. And on August 1st, Richard, they were supposed to meet at a restaurant and uh, at, leaving Richard's at 7 a.m. The boy's name is Phil, and he will be riding with me. Would any of you like to go? We need as many as possible. And 50 showed up. How cool is That's that? That's awesome. And then I guess then you got to get 50 of them to walk the boy into the classroom. Than just sit there. Now, a little intimidation, I guess. Sure, but I bet he's not going to be bullied. You don't. Don't make me call my friends. The rest <laughs> of his life, that boy's going to be able to say, "Don't make me call my friends over." Super cool, folks. That's that's right there. Humans helping humans. That's what this is all about, and that's why we do the show. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. The fun continues next hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
And we're back, friends. Uh, Boy, oh boy, have we got it for you today. You want to break a habit? You want to make a habit stick? Today's the day. We We have an expert coming on that can help you really use all the science behind habit making to make better habits. Just do it. Just do it. Nike nailed it. Mm. Uh, today's the day Jeffrey Liam Simpson has to do his weigh-in Ooh. for his eight-and-a-half-pound challenge. Are you thinking light thoughts? You know, I don't really need to because oh. I stepped on the scale last night, oh. and I was at the lowest I'd been since I'd started this. Have you consumed anything today? <laughs> yes. Oh, I liquid had diet? wheat checks with almond milk. Yeah, you're dead now. Wow, really? That, that just iceberg. What's it called? That just fatberged you. You now have a little fatberg in you. Four pounds. Congratulations. Four pound fatberg. Last hour, if you missed it, we did an entire um, expose on fatbergery. In detail. In detail. Sorry about mm. that. Yeah. So we're proud of you, Jeff. You've lost eight and eight point five pounds, probably, mm, just from looking yeah. at you. Yeah. Wow. Terry was thinking 8.4, I think 8.5. Did you used to work at the state fair and guess mm-hmm. people's weights? Actually, I used to work at the butcher shop, and I always <laughs> measured everything down to the ounce. <laughs> so good to – I'm proud of you. you. You look great. I really like your yoga pants too. Those are nice. Thank you. You're welcome. And you've also – some don't know, you started a second program. Yeah. And now you have to you have to lose another eight pounds. So I need to start exercising because the weight loss has really slowed down. So I've got three weeks to yeah. lose this about is, this is where six, you really, seven pounds. Yeah, this is where you earn your money. This is where it's going to really – Earn my 5 or $10? Yeah. Do you have any idea – so tomorrow, will you know how much money you won? I hope so. Probably not, though, because people have until tomorrow to weigh in. What if you happen to be in a highly motivated group where everybody lost all of their weight? I would not have a problem with that. Really? Because it was was worth the $30 just to lose the eight pounds. Wouldn't you rather – would you rather have $5 or the knowledge that hundreds of other people have fulfilled their goals? Well, five dollars. I, when I think of the five dollars, <laughs> I don't think of it as five dollars. I think of it as like a Happy Meal. Oh, good point. Maybe so, two. So yeah. buying the thing that I'm not supposed to be partaking of anyway. Well, you got to celebrate, yeah. right? That's how I see it. Mm. I mean, if you I'll, want, I mean, you. I mean, it's good. Go ahead. Be happy for everyone. Or go get a slice of pizza. <laughs> I'm just saying. You haven't had pizza for a long time, have you? Oh, we have it once a week. That's right. You have pizza night. And that's amazing. You still have pizza once a week and you've gained – you've lost all this weight and you look so slim and fit. Are you buttering me up for something? No. Well, the key is you can eat like a pizza every once in a while. Not every single day. Just be good the rest of the week. You can eat a whole pizza? Yeah, a piece within reason. Yeah, yeah. Maybe two. I'm totally with you. What would you do if – if Madonna, if if you're Madonna and nobody believes you are Madonna, right? How do you get people to <laughs> to know and believe you're Madonna? We're going to talk about that today. Yeah. I mean, no, really, I'm Madonna because the FedEx guy refuses to deliver packages you, you to see, the house. You see the picture that she posted with this when she put it on social media, and you're like, okay, I could see that because she didn't quite look like what you would think of Madonna. Well, because she's yeah. always changing her image. Yeah. Well, maybe – yeah, that's the thing. Like maybe underneath all of the makeup or hair or 
funny plastic surgery. Yeah. Underneath all of that, there's still a human being. Somewhere. Well, there definitely is. You just don't want it to be like Darth Vader where he removes his he removes his helmet and you're like, "What the?" If you watch the end of episode 3 yeah. where he's pulled out of the lava, there's not much left. He's That's mostly true. robot now. So really, when you think about it, he really looks great for what yeah. he was. I was like, wow, they did some quality work there. Yeah. Did I ever tell you my oldest brother took his three- or four-year-old to see that when it came out? No. How'd that go? And then somebody asked wow. my nephew what he thought, and he got all solemn-faced and said, Anakin burned. Yeah, well. Wow. So it was traumatizing. You need to be careful. Star Wars doesn't equal <laughs> little kids all the time. That kid is going to need some help. Give him my card, will you? <laughs> Give him my card. He's your age. Is he really? Yeah. That kid or your brother? Uh, my brother. Yeah. Okay, good. See, I still get questions as to why was Anakin in the lava? I'm like, well, and then you have to go through the explanation. Wait, you and... showed it to your boy too? Oh, yeah. He was so wow. cool. We have it at home though. So What's it was, wrong with it you, was in a safe home environment, not a big yeah. theater. No, no, no. Okay. You, you could walk him through the trauma. Yeah. It was like, just, okay, I'm going to slow walk you through this. It's going to uh-huh. happen. And he's yeah. like- why did that happen? So it's just kind of this moral thing where, as a parent, what did I just do to my kid? Yeah, and we wonder, and then we wonder why children are more and more anxious. Mm. I mean, I never saw anybody consumed by lava right. until I was 40. Oh, wow. Good point. But your boy saw so it, it at four. Is that well, I think it was. <laughs> I wanted to watch the movie. Yeah, that's See, fine. This is, this no, is fine. why I'm a bad parent. No, you're not a bad parent. Yeah, I am. <laughs> no, you're not. You're fine. It's just your son's going to be messed up. My judgment is questionable. He's a good kid, though. Um, And by the way, apparently he's got some new hair coming in. (laughs) He said this morning. (laughs) He goes, look, Mom, I have new hair coming in. I'm going to be just like Dad. Great. (laughs) That's so cute. Um, So we will be talking about uh, what what do you do if you're Madonna and nobody believes it and FedEx won't deliver packages. Also, what happens with a a guy that um, who whose license has been suspended 81 times? Like, apparently the suspension process isn't working. I did the math. We'll talk about that. Okay, good. And we will be talking clowns again. Apparently, scary clowns are coming back. Mm. Or people are warning against scary clowns, even if there haven't been any sightings. That's right. And with a new movie coming out called It, which apparently has an appearance of a clown or two in there. Wait, what is it It, called? It, it. Yeah, what is it called? It. It hmm. is called It. Hmm. And It is apparently Clowns Appear. So we we have a, one of our, our great shows here on BYU Broadcasting may have another boost because of clown sightings. Uh, what's it called again, Jeff? Bob the Clowny Hunter? Bob the Clowny Hunter, yeah. It's a great show. It's, it's one of – next to Studio C, it is probably the hottest commodity here at BYU Broadcasting. I mean other than <laughs> – Matt Townsend show. It has some of the best production values. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that long-haired uh, Bob, the clowny hunter. That, so he's an ex-clown. Yeah. Used to be a clown. That that hunts down clowns because well, he knows the psyche of a clown. Just just to differentiate between clowns and evil clowns, he just hunts yeah. down the bad clowns. I mean, there's good clowns. You don't want to hunt down a good clown. Many, right. many good people and, on all sides. And by the way, let's throw into that. There's good mimes. <laughs> there's good mimes. And good clowns. He actually, actually one time apprehended a mime thinking he was a clown. Common mistake. Yeah. By the way, pound for pound, mimes are the friendliest 
uh, profession out there. Always stuck in a box, though. It's yeah. crazy. That's the weird thing. And by the way, a box none of us can see. <laughs> so strange. So we'll get to all of that uh, fun straight ahead, plus, of course, how to make a habit stick. And uh, also, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's up around the country? On this day in history, September 7th, 1927, the first electronic TV signal. The man behind it? Philo T. Farnsworth. Philo T. Farnsworth. Thank heavens. How's he doing? Oh, he's passed away. But uh, there's a uh, historyoftv.com is a museum, actually, in San Francisco. You can go to that website. They'll have uh, a webcast later today kind of giving you full details of what it went with the effort and all the, you know, experimentation, things that happened to bring us the wonderful medium of TV. Where would we be without it? Starsky and Hutch? No. No. Love Boat? Uh-uh. Right. Fantasy Island? No. Nope. Think of all the reality TV no one would have. Oh, boy. Yeah. Where would the Kardashians That's right. be? They have nothing. 1930s, Farnsworth weighs a successful legal battle to be recognized as the inventor of electronic TV. There were a couple competing uh, interests yeah. there. And, and he, he was pushed able them to... all out. Good job, Philo. And so he uh, died in 1971 at age 64. So if you go to that, hist- thehistoryoftv.com. You That's can cool. uh, watch a webcast kind of detailing that whole historic event. Such that changed the world. Totally changed the world. In other news, the Atlantic- did I just hear some emotion? No, not at all. No, that was okay. It's just it, it is TV. I do get emotional about TV mm. and the Kardashians. It is like another <laughs> part of my family. Um, the Atlantic now has three active hurricanes on Wednesday afternoon. Mm. Tropical storm Katia. Katia, 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 formed in the Gulf of Mexico, officially upgraded to a hurricane status, 75 mile an hour winds. It joins Jose, which is out in the Atlantic and not sure where those two are going to go. Katia is actually in the Gulf of Mexico, kind of where that asteroid hit that wiped out the dinosaurs right there in the Yucatan Peninsula, right in that kind of hook area. You would think Jose was in the (laughs) Gulf of Mexico. Jose is out in the Atlantic. They think he's just going to spin out into nothing. He's maybe, yeah, he was maybe more from Spain. And of course, Mm. Irma is barreling down on Florida this weekend. Not to be confused with Irma Bombeck, and we clarified that. Or Uma Thurman. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is Good a point. U and an E, not an I. Uh, Facebook representatives told congressional investigators Wednesday that the uh, social media titan unknowingly sold political ads to a Russian troll farm during the 2016 election. This out of the Washington Post. Companies of company officials say they discovered that the Russian company, which has a history of pushing pro-Kremlin propaganda, purchased $100,000 worth of ads on the site. Most of the ads reportedly pushed politically divisive mm. issues like gun rights, immigration fears, uh, and racial discrimination. Race, uh, Facebook began investigating purchases of politically motivated ads on the site this past spring. So far, it has reportedly found that the Russian company was connected to 3,300 ads. Wow. So aiding and abetting the enemy. An analyst at the uh, the research firm Pivotal Research found Facebook ad manager, that's the uh, the uh, platform the you program, use to go yeah. online to, to buy the ads, claims to reach a potential audience of 41 million 18 to 24-year-olds in the U.S. Whereas census data most recently up- updated with a population estimate of 2016 indicates there are only 31 million people in that age group. So Facebook is saying they reach 41 million people in this age group. And the census says it's only 31. So they're trying now to just, okay, so what are we charging people for here? Because oh, we're not, it's not the same number it. of people. They're also finding that this Russian group's involved. 
and there may be a lot more of that as they keep looking. Yeah. And that might be the reason why the, the founder of Facebook, Zuckerberg, is out doing these these sort of getting to know you type uh, meetings with people all over the country. People are saying he may be running for president. He might just be trying to make Facebook look good when it finds out that they supported a lot of Russian propaganda. Well, and that not that interesting? So really, the Mueller investigation is now they've investigated Hillary. Yeah. They've investigated President Trump and all of his Trumpers. Uh-huh. And now Facebook is part of that. Well, not fa- yeah, yeah, kind of. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> it's all fun. The tangled web. Eleven states and the District of Columbia filed a lawsuit Wednesday in an effort to block President Trump's Tuesday decision to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival Program. The suit filed in New York accuses the administration of violating the Administrative Procedure Act and the Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses of the Constitution. So that situation will go on as people pile mm. into this lawsuit. And finally, why is it ho- so hard to remember what day it is during a short work week? Um, because you're out of your routine. Pretty much. Says one researcher says the idea is essentially you have some kind of internal clock that is your internal sense of time, which is clicking along. Uh, if you stop at the same stoplight every day on your way to work, your internal clock will develop a sense of how long that light is. But on days where you're in a rush, it's the longest light in the world. It's so when true. it's the same it's length the same every thing. day. I love holidays that fall on Monday. It's like finding the bonus fry in the bag of fast food. Yes. Says people's perception of time is distorted after you experience many different things like social stress. Your age can play a role in that, where people, as they get older, they say have a sense that time speeds up. Oh, really? Right. So I mean, when you were a fast. kid, when you were a kid, Christmas took forever. Right. The month of December was the longest thing, but as an adult, it just kind of whips just by. Flies right no by. Big deal. It's really. I just look at it. Look at it as four pillboxes. So what they're talking about is this idea of anchoring, right? You have this idea of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, yeah. Thursday, Friday. When you take one of those days out, you I do it all the time. I'll the show anchor. up and I'm calling Tuesday, Monday, and yeah. Thursday. Yeah. I'm thinking it's – this is essentially your, your weekly mental calendar is anchored by Saturday and Sunday, explains a professor of psychology from Montana State. A Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday blend together since they're in the middle of your routine week with, with no breaks. Right. And when you take one of those days out, you get confused and you're like, wait, what What day is it again? And I think we just need more of those Mondays off so that we can habitualize ourselves. Just make it a habit mm-hmm. that you don't work Mondays. That's – well, Jeff just made it a habit. Wrong. Oh, sorry. Not to be rude. Not to be rude. That's actually very – that's interesting insight. Anchoring and, – and there's a lot of research. You can anchor other habits in your life as well. And once mm-hmm. they're kind of anchored, they tend to stay. Right. But you move the anchor a little bit and then the – And as I read that, if you personally – if you mess with my anchors, whatever those yeah. may be, I get very agitated. Yeah. No, to- you do. Don't mess with my schedule. You totally do. Mm. And then it's like anchors away. Mm. Right? <laughs> Totally. Like my kid gets out early from school on Fridays. I mean, that messes, that messes up the entire but Think schedule. about how many parents that messes up. Oh, yeah. Or like um, when there's a snow day. A snow day will mess up so many schedules because you're moving all the anchors. Now, Name one person that will complain about a snow day, though. Parents. A parent. No, every the, parent. Be with the kid. Come on. If your kids, if your wife, if, if your daughters have a snow day and your wife had all this stuff planned to do, and now they're all staying home. I take it back. Actually, when I lived in Seattle, I loved snow days. 
But now that I live here in Utah, we don't nothing gets nothing gets canceled no. for snow. You can have a plow the road feet and keep of going. snow, and it's just we need, the only thing we if we had a hurricane in the mm. Midwest, right. in the Mountain West, that might stop stuff, but probably not. You know what will stop stuff are clowns. Ooh. And so before we go to break, I wanted to to bring this up, uh, and Jeff's been doing uh, as our empty news uh, anchor. Um, Jeff's been looking into more creepy clown sightings. So I'm not saying that there have been any sightings, probably, but uh, in Pennsylvania, the state police have issued a warning about the possible return of creepy clown sightings in conjunction with the new movie that you mentioned, yeah. It. It. Right? It. So – This is what the statement says. With the fall of 2017 upon us, it is anticipated that similar creepy clown sightings could be reported starting as soon as September, in part due to the fact that the movie It will be released in theaters on 9-8-2017, the bulletin reads. The movie, which is adapted from a Stephen King novel by the same name, portrays an evil demon who takes on the shape of a clown named Pennywise that stalks kids from within the sewers and killing them when they least expect it. Not to creep you out or anything. So Too late. last year, sightings were reported in 16 different states, including Pennsylvania. And the bulletin also read that these sightings are not new, given that they were reported nationwide as early as the 1980s, which coincidentally is when this movie takes place in the 80s. Really? The creepy, cl- uh, the creepy clown craze, tried to say that ten times no, fast, they... in September 2016 resulted in at least a dozen people arrested in Georgia, Ooh. Alabama, and Virginia for either taking part in the menacing stunt or making false reports. Hmm. Terry shared a few of those yeah. false reports yeah. with us. So anyway, uh, to help kind of get rid of this crazy clown problem that we seem to be having, BYU Broadcasting, as you mentioned, has a show – it's called Bob the Clowny Hunter. Mm-hmm. And this guy is an ex-clown, so he knows how to think yeah, like a he clown. he thinks like a clown. And he disguises himself as a clown when he's capturing these clowns. But now he has a badge, a bounty yeah. badge. But it's not just any clown. It's It has to be a bad clown. Yeah, not good clown. He only goes after the bad Or ones. mimes. Let's get mimes in there, too. So we've got a clip from uh, his next episode. Cool. Okay, I'm here today at the North Pine Mall. There have been reported sightings of several particularly suspicious-looking clowns. So, I'm going to check it out and take these punks down. I'm the Bob, the Big Bad Bob, the Clown Hunter. Oh, oh, there they are. It's like there are three of them. They're standing in a line with a bunch of normal-looking people. It's probably only a matter of time before they start terrorizing everyone. Oh, they look downright evil. What is it about malls that attracts these sickos? Okay, let's go get them. Hey there, my fellow partners in silliness. What you doing? Oh, hey, we're just here for the show. I've got a show for you right here. You know, it's clowns like you that give serious, hard-working clowns a bad name. All right, so it turns out that the group of clowns I apprehended were actually at the mall to see a new clown movie, and they're really big fans. But my lawyers have informed me that the film is about a killer clown, so serves them right. (laughs) Looks like we've gotten some more scumbags off the streets. I'm the Bob, the Big Bad Bob, 
Whether it's absent-minded mistakes at work, a weakness for junk food, a smartphone addiction, or a lack of exercise, everyone has a bad habit or behavior that they'd like to change. However, wanting to change uh, a a habit and actually doing it are two very different things, right? Dr. Sean Young, an authoritative new voice in the field of behavioral science and the director of the UCLA Center for Dig- of Digital Behavior and the UC Institute of Prediction Technology, knows a great deal about our behavior and how it can actually change it for the better. In his new book, Stick With It, he takes a fascinating look at the science of lasting behavior filled with crucial knowledge and practical advice to help everyone successfully alter their behavior and their actions. Dr. Sean Young, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for having me here. You bet. What what a what an intriguing, I think, um and needed book. I I love and and have actually worked with um, you know, Stephen Covey who wrote the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and it's it's one thing to to say we need a habit, it's another thing to actually make it happen. But you're you're showing in your book all of the latest science that helps us uh, truly create some change in our lives. Yeah, there there is science that is there. We have decades of of historical science as well as new cutting edge research showing us how we change our behavior and make it stick. And in this book, you know, I I created this book because back you know years ago there were personal and professional things going on in my own life that were getting me to question why people don't stick with things. Um, and I found that a lot of other people were, were going through and, and having those same questions. So I was, as I was studying this scientifically and, and saw that other people were experiencing the same problems, I decided to write this book because I realized that the current solutions out there really don't touch on that science. No, it's so true. And I mean, and it's one thing, I guess, like we I think we try to pump people up or motivate them up into, uh, you know, kind of thinking that just the drive and the motivation will do it. But um, that's what I loved about this article you wrote. And I think and the book as well is there there's some really powerful insight that, that's now been validated academically. As, as we get into it, what, what do you see are some of the biggest um, impediments that we're facing to create a habit. Yeah, well, you you just nailed one. I mean, I think, first of all, we're taught, the conventional wisdom teaches us if we fail at something, if we can't stick to something that we want to do, it's because there's something wrong with us as a person. We're flawed as a person. As a person. That's what we're taught. We're taught um, if we want to get ourselves to exercise more, if we want to be a better person, um, the reason why it's not working is because either we're not motivated and we need to become like people who are more motivated or we're, we're not disciplined enough and we need to be like people who are more disciplined or we don't have enough willpower. We need to be like other people, you know, and, and what I've learned and, and is that that not only makes us feel badly about ourselves uh, to, to be told become a different person, but but it's also not true scientifically. Um, what instead of trying to become a different person, what I've learned is that there's a scientific process 
that we need to do. And if we use that process, we can get ourselves and others to stick with things that we want to do. So one of the, since that science hasn't been out there, people often turn to self-help books. They turn to motivational speakers to say, to help them become more motivated, but that's just a temporary feeling. What we need is the actual day-to-day process to get us to stick to things that'll, you know, even on a day-to-day basis, if we're not always feeling motivated, feeling excited, that's fine. That's completely normal. That's human. But it doesn't mean that we're going to fail at things we want to do. We just got to follow the right process and science. And you can be you. How great is that? Like you can actually use your strengths and you can be you uh, to make it happen. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Sean Young in his book, Stick With It, a scientifically proven process for changing your life for good, which um, again, it's the power of science says now you can be you. You can be different. You can be you can bring all of your great strengths and your your attributes to life. You just you just need to figure out how to do it for you and and be very specific in your change instead of trying to change to be like someone else. We'll have more with Dr. Sean Young. This is the Matt Townsend show helping you be the good in the world. We are speaking with Dr. Sean Young, uh, who is the executive director of the University of California Institute for Prediction Technology and the UCLA Center for Digital Behavior, as well as being a medical school professor with the UCLA Department of Family Medicine. And Sean is uh, talking about his book, Stick With It, A Scientifically Proven Process for Changing Your Life for Good. And uh, Sean, again, welcome back. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Now, as we were talking before, what's so great about uh, kind of taking the scientific approach to this is you everyone's born with different strengths, different abilities. And um, and yet what you're saying is there are some very predictable uh, methods that any of us could figure out and how to use. Um, to actually make a habit of something that might not come naturally to us or it might come naturally to someone else. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think most of us, or, or I'd say really all of us, have things that we are really good at doing and really good at sticking to do. Um, you know, maybe it's not the things we value most about ourselves or, or what we want to be doing, but the same psychology, the same science that gets us to be able to do those things can be applied to help us be able to do really anything in our lives. And it's just understanding that science and how that works that can help us achieve it. It's, it's not about changing ourselves. It's not about um, feeling that there's something wrong with us as a person because that's not true. And, and it's really just about using that science correctly to make the changes that we want to make in our lives. That's great. What's, what are some of the, the hacks, some of the, the, the little things we can do that, that will make the change stick? Yeah, so, so there are little things um, that in, in Stick With It. First, I talk about uh, the, the process that I'm talking about of, of how do you actually do this? What is this process? Well, there's, it's a two-step process. The first step is figure out 
what type of behavior you're trying to change. You know, oftentimes um, we just think behaviors are all the same. And if you can, we treat behaviors all the same as saying, if you have a lot of willpower, you can do anything that you want. But behaviors are different. There are three different types of behaviors, or what I call the A, B, and C behaviors, which stands for automatic burning and common behaviors. Those are three different types of behaviors, but once we know which type of behavior we're trying to change, there's a set of seven tools. There's a toolkit or seven forces, as I call them, um, that can be used to change these behaviors, and different forces are used to change A, B, and C behaviors. Oh, interesting. One of those forces, yeah. Yeah, one of those forces is I, I call neurohacks, and that when you ask, you know, what are some quick tricks that you can do, um, neurohacks are actually often the quick tricks to, to reset your brain. So example of a, of a neurohack may be, you know, if, I've, if I want to be going to, to church or synagogue, um, you know, I'm thinking about becoming more religious, but it, I'm not really there yet. Um, one thing we, we might often be told is just believe it or, or will yourself or focus on it or think about it. Well, what we learned from neurohacks is that you can't have your mind change your behavior. You start with your behavior. So if you want to, um, if you want to start attending a congregation more frequently, if you want to start becoming part of a, a group, a running group, a synagogue, a, a school, whatever it is, just start going from that first process of, of showing up. That'll reset your mind and teach you that this is important to me. I am the type of person who goes to these events and goes to church or goes to synagogue or goes to this running group. Um, and that resets your brain. And, and neurohacks, the idea that it starts with your behavior, it doesn't start with your mind. Once you change your behavior just to start, then your mind will follow. Mm. So one thing, because that's that, you know, everyone else is always starting, you know, we got to change your paradigm, we got to change how you see something. So I guess it, what you're really saying is you you had a thought in your head of a goal you wanted to accomplish. You uh, you apparently needed some motivation to do it, but you're saying then go do it. And if you do it and you and you keep acting on that thought, it eventually will actually change your your deeper desire. It'll change. That's how it'll change your thinking. Yeah, yeah. So this is one of the the seven forces. This is just one of the ways to change behavior and certain types of behavior. Uh, and it's and it's called neurohacks. An interesting study in this area, actually, they had people. They had a group of people listen to an advertisement. And they had half of the people shake their head up and down while listening to the advertisement. They had the other half of the people shake their head side to side from left to right while listening to the advertisement. Then afterward, they asked people, how much do you agree with the advertisement? Well, the, the people didn't know why they were shaking their head up and down or in the other group side to side. They didn't know what they were doing or why. But it turns out that shaking your head up and down is what you do when you're nodding yes. And shaking your head left to right, side to side, is what you do when you're saying no. So when they asked the people afterward who agrees with the advertisement, it turned out that the people who had been shaking their head up and down were more likely to agree with the advertisement. That's because just the simple act of the behavior of moving your head up and down, it 
internally we know this is what we do when we agree with something. And so it got them to actually change their thoughts. So the idea of neurohacks is that change starts not in the mind but in the behavior, and then the mind will follow. That's powerful. And I mean, I mean, again, just basic science as you're learning it. All right, Sean, are these, I'm assuming uh, that these research, all of this research that you're, you're using in your book, um, stick with it. It's, it's not all coming from one department or even from one field of psychology, is it? Isn't it coming from like multiple fields and now we're starting to understand it as a whole? Yeah, this is, it's coming from all over. So my background, I was trained as a social and behavioral psychologist um, where I studied people and why people do things. But I'm now, like you said, I'm a, I'm a medical school professor. I've been doing this for, for about 15 years, studying how we apply this psychology in health and medical settings. Um, I've also used this, this science in work that I do in business and consulting and with startups and in my own life. And, and it takes research, not just from psychology, but research in health and medicine that we've done with our, our patients and with our research participants. It takes research in business, takes research, you know, all across different areas because um, psychology is the study of people. And we've got we've to be able to see how people act in different ways to be able to know how people act. And, you know, the flip side of that is, once you understand how and why people act, you can apply that to any area of your life or or in the world. Hmm. Talk about because um, in, in your article too, you you mention um, other other tools, other ways to kind of to to make this happen. You know, one that's obvious is you know break it down into smaller segments. But I know I know there is. This kind of minimal you don't need to you don't need to go make you don't even need to go do the the thing the biggest thing um uh you know like if it's going back to church or or trying to attend a religious synagogue or whatever you don't even need to necessarily make it all the way to church to begin the habit. There is research showing sometimes you just do need to offer a minimal effort. talk about that yeah absolutely so so. The, the process, like I said, there, there's a two-step process. First, figure out whether something's an automatic burning or common behavior. Um, automatic behaviors are things that we do unconsciously. We're not even aware that we're doing them. Um, like I want to stand up straighter or not and have better posture, but I'm, I'm not aware of it. That's an A behavior. B behavior is something that we're aware of we're doing, but we feel like we can't stop. It feels like an addiction or a compulsion, like I... Um, when I get a text message, I feel like I got to check it immediately. And then C behaviors, common behaviors, are behaviors that are due to often motivation. I'm aware what I should be doing, but other things get in the way. Um, friends ask me, I want to be able to exercise, or the church example, I want to be able to go to church, but I'm tired. You know, I was up late last night, or or I was working, or I need to work. Other things get in the way, and and uh, that's a C behavior. Well, knowing which type of behavior you are trying to change, then there's a set of tools or forces for changing them. And the set of forces, we can remember them. I created this the mnemonic called science, where each one of the letters of the word science stands for a different one of these seven forces. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's called science not because you need to be a scientist or, or a physician to 
to understand them, but just so that we remember it's really based and rooted in decades of scientific research and, and including cutting edge new research. So S, S stands for step ladders. Step ladders is like you were saying, the idea of doing things in small incremental steps. And I think that makes sense to people. Intuitively, we, if, if we want to be able to do something, if we make a New Year's resolution that we want to be able to do something, um, it should be something small. It should be something that, that we're used to and that we can achieve. So I, was, I ran into uh, to someone at the market, and, and he told me this, this story where he had wanted to run a marathon. He tried to run a marathon. And his background was he had run cross-country in high school. So he had a lot of training, he had a lot of experience, but it had been, you know, 15, almost 20 years since he ran cross-country. But since then, he had gone on, um, he was in Army intelligence. He went and, uh, and, and served time in Afghanistan. He's a, he's a smart guy, he's mm. motivated, he's, you know, everything that we would say you need to be able to stick to things. Well, so he thought, you know, that alone, along with his, his experience, with uh, with cross country, he can run a marathon, and really impressive. He he actually got to mile nineteen, but but then he collapsed. Oh, and and what he what he told me was, you know, I, I didn't finish that marathon, and I I probably won't run another marathon since. And and I think that story really resonates in that I know there's no way that I could run a marathon without training. We'd need I'd need to you know, start small, start with running a couple of miles and gradually build my way up. But all of us do things like that in our daily life. We might understand the marathon example, but we may plan um, our, a New Year's resolution to exercise or go to the gym five days a week, every week during the year, when last this past year, maybe we went once a month. That's not a small step, and it means that it's going to be really difficult for us to achieve it. So doing things in small steps will help us to be able to stick with what we want to do. But then that raises the question of what does small steps really mean? To, to one person, you know, small may mean one thing. To another, thing, to another person, it may mean something else. So in Stick With It, what I did is I created a figure called Steps goals and dreams. And, and in this, I, I quantify how long steps, goals, and dreams take. So if something takes more than a few months to achieve, I call that a dream. Uh, for me, running a marathon would be a dream. I'd have to, it would take me more than three months of training and practice to be able to, to get to do it. Um, goals are things that take a month to a, a few months, shorter, long-term goals. And steps are things that take less than a week. So if I have, if I've never really gone running before seriously and I don't even have a pair of running shoes, getting a pair of running shoes, I could do that today and that would be a first step. And I think by breaking things up this way with that figure, it really helps to teach us that how we can set steps, goals, and dreams so that we can be able to stick with things that we want to do and make them small enough to achieve powerful it really is i think i mean it's it's groundbreaking and i can almost see how you could take any 
con you know any goal you need to 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 make and plug it into your process in the book uh, through the book stick with it and I think I could just see us at the end making progress because the neat thing about the research is. It's um, you don't just have to be a Navy SEAL, and even being a Navy SEAL doesn't mean you can just run a marathon. You have to you have to understand the steps and the science really behind it. Sean, as we're wrapping up, I know you've got to, you've got somewhere that you got to get to. I want to know um, what would you say is the one thing? I guess other than getting out and buying your book immediately, what's the one thing that any of us could do today that would have the biggest impact on our ability? to uh, to get the goal uh, to get a goal started and, and actually start achieving it yeah there's there's two things that I would say that so first um, figure out whether you have an a B or C behavior that you're trying to change and if you go to to my website seanyoungphd.com, or if you uh, reach out on Twitter Sean young PhD is the the uh, Twitter handle um, there are resources on helping to helping you to figure out whether you have an A, B, or C behavior. Um, and, and once you do, then there's a figure in Stick With It that'll tell people, here are the forces needed for changing that A, B, and C behavior. So I think the, the first step of that process is, is knowing that behaviors aren't all the same. First, you've got to figure out what type of behavior that you are trying to change. Is it an A, B, or C behavior? That's it. Powerful stuff. Sean Young is his name. You can go to Sean Young, Ph.D., or uh, also just go look up the book, Stick With It, A Scientifically Proven Process for Changing Your Life for Good. Uh, Great insight. Again, and what I love about it is the hope that's coming from uh, kind of his social psychology, his positive psychology background as well. The research is showing you don't have to just be naturally good at making habits and, and creating change in your life. That if it's not in your nature, that's fine. But there are there are some there are some steps that every one of us can take, and we can take them today, and they'll make a difference today. Great insight. We'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. Yes, it's the happy music, which means it's time to get to the empty news with our empty news anchor, Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Jeffrey. The empty news team, first on the scene, fifth on facts. How many times has your license been ex- uh, uh, suspended? Six. Six times. That's not bad. Nah, it was a bad year. So how would you feel if you were 21 years old and your license had been had been suspended 81 times. <laughs> so let me tell you the Sad. story, and then I'll give you the math behind this, okay? okay? Authorities say police in New York have arrested a 21-year-old man who had his driver's license suspended 81 times. Suffolk County police say Dylan Garcia was pulled over Wednesday. A police spokeswoman says suspensions usually occur after someone fails to pay fines or appear in court to answer charges. She says she doesn't have specifics on Garcia's case and doesn't know how many summonses he has received. Hmm. Okay. So let's just assume he just barely turned 21. Okay. And he got his license right at 16. Right. Okay. That would mean he has his license suspended every three weeks. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I mean, maybe, yeah, I, I guess he's he just loves a good suspension. Maybe. Maybe he doesn't <laughs> have a place to park. So maybe these are all tickets. And maybe it's not every three weeks. Maybe he actually gets one a week for the last two years. Okay. But yeah, what if it is just an honest mistake and he, he goes to the mailbox every day and it's like, oh, darn it, again? There's probably something bigger going on here, I'm betting. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, but maybe, does he even have a car? Maybe. <laughs> if he doesn't have a car, oh, he's got his license suspended, though. So it's, maybe he's just a bad driver. Maybe he needs, maybe he's like Mr. Magoo. His eyes are bad. <laughs> and he just can't see. Boy. Something's going on, Dylan. Come give me a call, Dylan. I'll walk you through this. Yeah. You know, maybe it's not him. Maybe it's somebody else that dresses like Dylan. Yeah, which is an interesting segue because in our next story, it has to do with uh, Madonna and how she cannot get FedEx to deliver a package to her. What does it take? So she's one of the most recognizable artists that we have she's been around forever but she does kind of change her image quite a bit right so the vogue singer shared on twitter today a frustrating experience with the delivery service fedex the company doesn't believe she's who she says she is (laughs) as a result fedex won't release a package to her the tweet quickly caught the attention of the site of the stars fans who noted that it was a very relatable problem offered suggestions for next time the company delivers a package, and, of course, provided several puns related to the situation. Some of the better Twitter res- responses were... This This is my favorite. Yeah. Fed Express Yourself. Ah, that's Hence, cute. Express you Yourself. Sing the song. I don't know if I get these other two. Come on at FedEx, get into the groove. Is that a lyric from one of her other songs? Apparently, yes. Okay. And then... Probably stuck at the borderline. I'm looking at Is all that another songs, song? and I can't. Again, I'm not a. I'm not. I'm not a big Madonna fan. Come on. I mean, don't get me wrong. Admit it. I love me some Madonna. It's. Uh, oh, she has been. That's true. Um, since 1984, 82 was one of her big releases. That's crazy. Uh, some of, I guess, her music. With was with uh, groups with The Breakfast Club and Emmy. Um, Madonna signed with Sire Records in 82. And then do you remember her global bestsellers in 84, Like a Virgin, True Blue, 1986, Ray of Light, 1998, Confessions on a Dance Floor, 2005. I still, I still remember her from the film Dick Tracy back in the 80s. Yeah. I had a girlfriend in high school that loved... Um, a lot of the songs on the Like a Virgin So album. she has changed her image so many times throughout her career that I could kind of side with FedEx on this. Like, I, I maybe I wouldn't recognize her. You're not Madonna. I'm looking for a Madonna Louise Ciccone. Where are the cones? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are not Madonna. You are wearing a robe and flannel, you know, pants or whatever. Yeah, she's not, she may not dress like Madonna. What do you do? It's hard to be that famous. Her net worth apparently five hundred eighty million. You'd think that she'd be able to sort this out. Yeah, at least she could buy FedEx. At least Maybe she's not getting her packages FedEx, eventually. She lives, by the way. Apparently, her residence is in uh, Lisbon, Portugal. Lisbon, Lisbon. 
I hardly know him. Uh, interesting <laughs> stuff. Problems of a global uh, or an international superstar. And UPS struggling to get her packages. FedEx. FedEx. Oh, sorry. FedEx try, struggling to get her her packages. Well, you know, it could be worse, couldn't it? We got more coming down uh, down the road for you, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Happy Thursday, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Terry South and Jeffrey Liam Simpson. On the keyboard today, we got a great show for you. We will be revisiting an interview we did about how forgiving others is good for your health. So you need to. Today's the day. You're going to. You're going to forgive. Like, you don't have to forget. Just like, forgive. Like a real level of forgiveness, yeah, or just down, like okay, fine. No, down to the core. Wow. Wait, did you just say we don't? We don't have to forget. You don't have to forget. Oh. See, people always think they go together. If you forgive, you forget. So you can hold that grudge is what well, you're no, saying. Well, no, you also – you just shouldn't be taken advantage I of I agree. Again. You should be able to hold a grudge for just a long, long time. No, grudge That's is good where, advice, Matt. A Thanks. grudge is where you park your car. That's a garage. Hmm? It's also a movie with Sarah Michelle Gellar. It's true. Of course. I never saw movie. it, but I think there was a sound in there, something like this. What was it? Wow. Wow. Yeah, not on demand. (laughs) On demand sounds. No, you've got to learn to forgive and let it go. And yet Mm. you're not brain dead. You may realize, okay, I can't I can't necessarily trust that they can do that again next time. So but I'm going to let it go. So I'm not going to carry it anymore. Okay, not going to carry the junk anymore. Like we have to get over Harvey Mm -hmm. and let it go because Irma's coming now. Right. But you should, you still shouldn't trust a hurricane. They're running out of gas in Florida. Are they already? Yeah. The stores, yeah, they're cleaning off stores the are shelves. cleaning off shelves. There were some photos from Harvey. I'm not sure if they were real or not, but they were funny. Where in the grocery store you see like the um, the, the shelves are empty except the vegan section. Vegan section was fully packed. Tons of vegan food if you wanted it. Oh yeah. But Isn't that interesting? The rest of the shelves. See, that's where it pays off to be a vegan. Right. Is in a national, you know. Is the vegan disaster. food really going to sustain you, though? If you have enough if of it. If you're starving? Yeah. Really? Will. Yeah. I mean, you don't need a wad of cheese. Mm. But isn't it basically like dirt? No, no, it's no, just no, dirt no, no. In the it's refrigerator? It's uh, fruit. It's. Um, but I thought to be a vegan. Some, some versions of tofu? Yeah, nuts. You can't eat tofu. meat. You can't eat uh, vegetables. Mm-hmm. You can't eat anything that's even that even resembles a vegetable. What's that? Vegan? I thought it was. No, yeah. no. vegan's about animals. Yeah, not about hmm. plants. You know what? This diet's affecting you. <laughs> Have you noticed that? He's not thinking it. straight. Right. He's only been on a diet for or a month. Crooked for that it's matter. not even a diet. It's it's he, he's been on this life change for a month. He's lost eight point five pounds. He weighs in today. And then it all starts again tomorrow because he's got to lose another six and a half pounds or whatever. Mm-hmm. At this, we're losing the brain fat. 
The brain, the brain fat. I guess your brain needs fats. Oh, sure, huh? And you probably have not been eating enough fat to give your brain the fat it needs. So, is that why I have like these bumps on the side? Uh-huh. Those are the brain love handles. Yeah, yeah, those have okay. disappeared. <laughs> so now, brain love that's why your headset fits so much better. <laughs> uh, so we'll be talking forgiving. We'll be talking about Jeff's diet. We'll be meeting with our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Plus, of course, a hero story. We got a lot to cover, and the headlines really, first and foremost, Terry, take us on the journey. What's going on around the rest of the country? House of Representatives approved uh, $7.85 billion in hurricane relief funds Wednesday in a nearly unanimous vote. Good job. Again, the House of Representatives doing something nearly unanimous. Four hundred nine. Now, hurricane relief funding. Yeah, this seems like a no-brainer. 419 to 3. But the three just didn't like some of the extra stuff in there. I don't know. They like flooding. Justin Amish from Michigan, Andy Biggs from Arizona, and Thomas Massey from Kentucky. Texas does not like you. Yeah. Vote for Texas. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell reluctantly agreed to the deal and turned it uh, into legislation Wednesday night, tracking another or tacking another $7.4 billion in community block grants to jumpstart rebuilding efforts. The Senate is expected to approve the $15.3 billion package sometime today, and then they'll start to watch Irma and figure out how much money Irma is going to need to recover. Uh, More money. More money. More hurricanes. President Trump stunned Republican leaders Wednesday by siding with Democrats during a conversation about linking Hurricane Harvey relief to a three-month debt limit increase. Trump didn't just side with the Democrats, though. He reportedly broke a stalemate when congressional leaders were ready to disagree, as it says in Business Insider. According to a source briefed on the meeting, the leaders were deadlocked over the length of the debt ceiling extension as the leaders appeared ready to agree to disagree which means they walk out of the room without a deal, I guess. Trump interjected and said the group should go with a three-month debt ceiling raise and a three-month continuing resolution. Republicans would have preferred a longer extension to avoid another fight in December. That's that's the downside is we're going to do this in December again. Democrats could use the opportunity as leverage to attach a provision aimed at codifying into law the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival Immigration Program, DACA. DACA. So DACA could come back around because Trump approved this deal. Now DACA can get its foot back in the door. And we could get that. It said uh, the proposal had no had no support from Republican leaders who are now reportedly furious that Trump gave in to Democrats' demands, according to Politico. See, what do you do? So, I mean, many were questioning if he really was a Republican anyway. Is he really just, he'll do whatever it takes? I don't know. Read the, read the accounts of that meeting. They're fascinating. As to why he made a decision, they kind of feel like, is he just randomly coasting through life or does he have some sort of guiding principle or what's he doing? And that was the special meeting where he had a special visitor that came in. Towards the end, Ivanka came in and apparently I was reading this morning that it's a a business trick that he used when he's in a a business meeting and it's not going well or he wants to end it. Ivanka comes in. Shakes everyone's hands, and then she introduces herself, all this. And then the meeting just sort of is its derailed at that point, and so he ends it and everyone leaves. And <laughs> as she walked in the room, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan kind of glance over, and they said they kind of gave a look. They deny this happened, but the reports were there was some sort of look of dissatisfaction well, because they know this trick. And uh, That is kind of strange ended. that you're sitting there and you're closing a big deal, and the next thing you know – 
Uh, I mean, it would be cute if it was like Ivanka's daughter. Right. The little kid, little kid runs in to see grandpa. grandpa. That would be yeah. cute. But when, you know, it's a 30-something-year-old and she's like, Daddy, what are you having a meeting? Well, she came in and talked <laughs> about the uh, child tax credit yeah. that she was hoping that they would consider for the new tax proposal. So it was a completely different topic that she came in and started That's talking it. about. Yeah, let's have a meeting and just throw that in there. And it just sort of disrupted the meeting. He okay. made his decision and off they went. All right. So is that the same meeting where he said um, where he mentioned that his daughter wanted to go on a trip with him? No, no. That was at a live event, I think, on Wednesday at some point. All right. Well, at least I mean, he needs he needs some advisors. A lot of his advisors have been leaving. And so at least we know he's being advised Um, in another unanimous Agreement by the U.S. House on Wednesday. They huh. did. They did this twice. They almost had a unanimous wow. on the Harvey relief, and then they had. Was it on? Un- it was on the judges. No, it was on self-driving oh. cars. <gasps> They're going to allow them. The U.S. House on Wednesday unanimously approved. So there was no no votes. Apparently, yeah. A sweeping proposal to speed the deployment of self-driving cars without human controls by putting federal regulators in the driver's seat and barring states from blocking autonomous vehicles. There's many states that said that we're not going to allow them on the road. Yeah. You're right? not, not so going to do this technology. not going to happen. And now the federal government is stepping in and saying, no, this has yeah, to be Yeah, you forward. are. You are. Which is crazy because in the House of Representatives, there's a lot of states' rights yeah. type people right, there. Right. The Freedom Caucus, right? They, they defer all things to the state. And the federal government here, is this overreach? Is this big government coming down? Yeah, it's going to feel like that. The House measure, states. the first significant federal legislation aimed at speeding self-driving cars into the market, would allow automakers to obtain exemptions to deploy up to 25,000 vehicles without meeting existing auto safety standards in the first year. Hmm. Seems a little strange. The yeah. cap would rise to over a three-year period to 100,000 vehicles annually. Automaker business groups and advocates for the blind praised the House measure, but one consumer group said the House bill did not go, uh, and, uh, do enough to ensure self-driving cars would be safe. Under the bill, manufacturers seeking exemptions must demonstrate self-driving cars are at least as safe as existing vehicles. Hmm. So there's the standard of where are we at right now with every vehicle on the road? That's the measure you need to meet. Some of the states were pushing for a stiffer, higher standards, higher standards yeah. for the driving, self-driving cars. States could still set rules on regulation, licensing, liability, insurance, and safety inspections, but not performance standards. The measure now goes to the Senate, where a bipartisan group of lawmakers has been working on a similar bill. Hmm. So, self-driving cars. That's and, – and weird. They're two for two. Can Congress continue this trend? On the unanimous votes? Yeah. Whoa. I mean, what if we could just throw in there or sneak in there some health care bill? Uh, yeah. I mean, if Donald Trump's going to go either way, slide President it Trump un- can slide it either way. Just kind of put it underneath some yeah. papers and, and hopefully – And then what you do, right when they're about to like bring up questions, you bring Ivanka in. Right. And have her distract him. <laughs> and then it's like, hey, everybody, I'm going voting with my dad. And then they Someone sign just it. Someone absentmindedly signs uh-huh. – legislation for a fifth of the economy. It'll be great. He's on to something. It'll be awesome. This is good. Finally, guys might be good at carrying heavy furniture, but they tire faster than their female counterparts, new research shows. Really? Hmm. We've known for some time that women are less fatigable. Don't know if that's that a, a word, word, but that's what they yeah. put there. Than fatigable. Men, fatigable. It's just, yeah, fat, <laughs> fatigable it, is how it's spelled. I think it's, it's actually fatigable. Uh, yes. Golly, oh, Fetty Gable? So uh, they, she was a great actress. So during isometric muscle tests, static exercises where joints don't move, such as holding a weight, 
But uh, we wanted they wanted to find out if that's true during more dynamic and practical everyday movements, says a researcher from UBC. And the answer is pretty definitive. Women can outlast men by a wide margin. Ha. Collaborating with ha. the University of Guelph and University of Oregon, the researchers report in the Journal of Applied Physiology that a handful of men and women were asked to flex their foot against sensors as, men, as, as, uh, was, as fast as they could up to 200 times. And the women could just fly right through it. The men, they would fatigue much faster. They note that like ultra trail running, men tend to be faster, but women tend to be far less tired. Uh, a fact that in uh, Outside Magazine, one runner called for separate goals for women. If ever an ultra marathon, ultra, ultra marathon is developed, women may likely dominate. So it's more of the man can do the, the shorter yeah. distance. The woman can actually go farther and run yeah. longer than the man can. Well, it makes sense because like uh, I, my wife always wants us to weed our yard on Saturday. And I can really – I can only do it about – 22 minutes yeah but my wife can go for hours Hmm. and i asked her how do you have the ability to go for hours and she looked at me kind of in disgust oh wow and said well somebody has to wow that's better than me i just i get tired watching my wife weed Hmm. oh in your chair yeah fanning yourself it's hard to fan yourself for that long it is that'd be one of those (laughs) isometric well, especially because your other hand is feeding yourself grapes. Oh, yeah. Or anything, really. Mm. And then you're going up and down the stairs to get your drink. I mean, I might as well be plucking weeds because I'm plucking the grapes off of, you know, the little vine. Yeah. Same thing. Exactly. Yeah. I Honestly, women, I, I've always kind of sensed that. Women have this incredible – that's why I think it's the childbirth thing too. <sighs> because if you handed that job to us, no. zero population growth. It would be over. I mean, and it would be. I mean, they're lucky that the kids are still alive anyway. <laughs> but it would be over. Thank heavens for ladies that are, have that endurance. And it's important because sure, you can move a piano, but you know, what about getting the dishes done today, every day, right, forever, or whatever? It's cool. It's really cool. Hmm. <sighs> that's why. That's a great new answer for my wife. Like, hey, do you want to help with the dishes? I'm like, ah. Oh. Wish I could, but I've expended my energy. No, like there's there's a study that says you just have more energy than I do. So, ha, have you guys ever had the two o'clock thing where about two o'clock in the afternoon you're like done? Yeah, and you yeah. just can't. I usually take function. a nap for thirty minutes right there. Yeah, two o'clock. That's a great two to two thirty. That's a great. No, I, I love a good half hour nap. I, I take three of them a day. Well, that's why I never lie down on the couch, on the bed, mm. or even sit in a comfortable chair because if I do. That's the end. Well, you know what? It's actually – it's natural, right? It's natural to have that. About 2.30, researchers are finding out that um, a, you have a 24-hour clock, right? So it's common to have, have that feeling of sluggishness in the afternoon. It's in large uh, part due to your circadian rhythm, roughly a 24-hour master clock that regulates your hormones, your brain, pretty much everything that goes on with your, with your body. And in the Journal of Neuroscience, researchers at Aust- in Australia's Swinburne University of Technology have found that you got to watch out around 2.30. Jamie Byrne says the study – she's the lead author on the study – says conventional wisdom has been the, that – Reward response is driven by reward-related factors such as the relative appeal of of a reward, $10 versus $100, for example. 
and internal factors such as whether you are optimistic or pessimistic. But the study is finding out that during that time frame of day, you you basically – all of your reward functions tend to shut down and all you really want, you'll just you, – your body just is going to go to sleep. Hmm. So every other decision you make – oh, will you wake him up? It's well, your, why do I have pro- to do You're it? the producer. I'm trying to stay on air and somebody needs to wake him up. He'll be all right. Oh, there he is. Is he back? I don't know, but he's sure getting fluid all over the <clears> – <throat> board there. What happened? So uh, MRI scanners show that blood flow slows down in the brain around 2 o'clock. Wow. And it starts to really shut you down. Right after lunch. Uh-huh. Eat some lunch and now take a nap. Yeah. Hmm. So this this is socially acceptable. No, it's just no, it's science. natural. It's different. Hmm. So I, I can't just go home and take a nap. Well, you no, you can. You actually can because you're at home. And honestly, a half-hour nap, that's all you need. I need a half-hour morning nap, half-hour evening nap, and a half-hour afternoon nap, and I'm good. So you take a nap right before you go to bed? A pre-nap. It's a pre – I just call it a pre-bedtime ritual nap. So you and your wife have a prenuptial agreement? <laughs> well, No, we don't. No. We haven't, like, signed anything. <laughs> Anyway, so what it basically means is just know about 2 o'clock you're going to get tired. And that's usually when people start throwing down energy drinks. Right. But you're still – it might be better to just go get some Zs. Just take a quick 30 and you're, you're up and at them. Mm-hmm. The problem is when the 30 stretches into four hours. Yeah. I've, I've had that happen before. That's Well, sometimes they just get away from you. Right. Sometimes those naps just and then slide that, right that out. look from my wife when I've been down there just blissfully asleep and she's dealing with everything else. Yeah, yeah, that's never a good look. No, you're like, whoa, I was tired. You don't know how tired I was because I lift more, but you can last longer. Right, she has more energy than I do. Then you throw out that research. Right. Then look for the look. It's never good to cite research no. as you're in trouble with a significant other. It no. never works. You need mm. to just, okay, you're right. Just take it and say, mm-hmm. you're right. I'm wrong. I'm bad. Me oversleep four hours. <laughs> Me bad. And then, hey, do you want to talk? That's what you well, say. Do you want to talk? I think, I think that's going too far. You're overcommitting at that point. No, you just that. Then you talk. But then then try to stay awake. Then you bond with her. Maybe you say, "Do you want to talk?" If you know the answer is no, because then you're 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 reaching out, knowing that you're not actually going to have to. Do oh anything. yeah, and you've tried. Then you say, "I try." Don't say I don't try to talk. Right. Do you remember that after that one time I slept four hours and you were mad at me? I tried to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember that you weren't interested. Bringing up the past in conversation. Yeah, always works. Good stuff. See, that's why our next guest uh, we will be revisiting an, an uh, a discussion about forgiving how it's good for your health stick with us this is the matt townsend show helping you be the good in the world Life can be stressful. You know, you've got deadlines, finances, family issues. The list is endless. So now there seem to be also hundreds of different cures for stress, medications, lotions, lights, spas, psychologists. 
But what if you could actually de-stress your life in a much easier way? What if there's one thing you could do today to eliminate a lot of stress in your life? A few months ago, I spoke with uh, Dr. Lauren Toussaint, a professor of psychology at Luther College in Iowa, and he shares how he found through his own studies and research how forgiving others is actually good for your health and helps you de-stress. I began the interview asking Dr. Toussaint how he defines forgiveness. Well, it's interesting because I think that's the probably the place that most people get hung up is yeah. they get confused about what this thing is. And um, for me, it's it's really internal. It's it's almost entirely within uh, a given person, and it's it's simply um, just letting go of the bad stuff that you might think or feel or the ways the ways that you might act towards somebody that hurts you. And trying to just let go of all that bad stuff and trying to replace it with anything that would be a little bit better. Mm. So, you know, if you're, if you're kind of angry with a coworker and you're avoiding them and giving them the scowl from across the, the, uh, the office room, uh, maybe, you know, maybe you can just say good morning once. And yeah. um, just trying to add a little bit of positivity back into that um into that feeling or that, that way that you think about that person. And, and you've, you've done more than just read about it. You've, you've actually performed a study. Talk to us about your work and your study. Yeah, well, so we got to thinking, um, if you define forgiveness that way, uh, which is really about in, kind of managing internal emotions and thoughts and, and really just focusing on that basic phrase of letting it go and and disconnecting from it, don't don't let that anchor you. Then it occurred to us that that could probably be a pretty effective way of coping with a lot of life's uh, relationship issues. Mm. And boy, I'm I'm guessing that you know as well as I do. There's a lot of those. Oh things yeah, out there. <laughs> and, and people can't let go, can we? And so many of the issues, like you just said, so many of our days and our problems and our stresses come from people and our interactions with people. Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head there, Matt. Um, when you think about the stresses of your typical daily life, um, you know, we all got the big ones, but they kind of come and go, and, and for most of us, thankfully, they're, they're not real common. Um, you, you know, you, you just you don't have really major stresses every day, but every day you do have uh, those issues of, you know, maybe your spouse got up on the wrong side of the bed, or maybe your kid barked at you, or maybe your supervisor wasn't as complimentary as you thought they should be, and you feel <laughs> kind of offended by that. Right. All of those, all of those things, they, you know, if you if you can't approach that with kind of a forgiving attitude, um, that can really be a source of a lot of pain and a lot of trouble for people. And so, we we thought that uh, forgiveness. I mean, the thing that really prompted this. For us is we really thought forgiveness would serve well as a coping mechanism in life, mm. and and so that's where we started with that kind of premise. Um, and then we, we went a couple steps further than that. We said um, if it's a coping mechanism, it should be the case that it would help uh, kind of buffer or protect you from the ravages of daily stresses. And that's kind of a that's kind of a standard um, way of thinking about it in the scientific literature on psychology is that 
by definition, a coping mechanism should help alleviate stress. Hmm. And, and so, I mean, you can think about other things that you might do. Um, if, uh, if you're a little bit nervous when you're in traffic or something, right. um, you're a new driver in a big city, sometimes it helps to, you know, maybe distract yourself a little bit, think about something that you enjoy, or maybe think about your upcoming vacation or something. Um, and so that kind of takes the edge off some of those things, and that's what we thought that forgiveness would do. And so in our study, we measured um, life stresses, we measured forgiveness as a coping mechanism, and then we measured very globally um, a mental health and physical health, and we kind of just had a very global index of health. And we found a, you know, we found a couple of things, and I think, um, I think for you and most of your listeners, you, you would not be surprised to hear that uh, stress is related to poor health. I mean, that's yeah, right. <laughs> that's that's pretty obvious, right? We've known that for a long time, and and we found that again, um, that people that reported more of the stresses, especially those, you know, relationship stresses and the things that we've just talked about, they had poor poor health. Um, and we also found, uh, a little bit newer, but, but at this point now, probably fairly expected, we found that forgiveness was related to better health. And mm. we, find that, we find that pretty consistently in the studies that we do, that forgiveness is related to better health. And that's kind of newer news. Um, but again, you know, we've probably been, I've been studying this for just about 20 years, and we find a pretty consistent pattern. Um, so that was not any uh, real big... Uh, shock to us. But what we found really interesting was that um, the people that were the most forgiving, when you looked at the connection between stress and health, usually we think stress is related to poor health, but for people that are really forgiving, that connection is almost erased. Really? Like the, like the magic eraser. It just, it kind of dissolves the um, it dissolves that that uh, you know that kind of cliche stress is bad for your health. Well, not if you're a real forgiving person. It just doesn't seem like that connection um, is as strong. It's like it's so like you're we, so strong. Your coping mechanism to pain and hurt from others is so high. It doesn't impact your stress levels as much. Yeah, and you know that's a great way to think about it. Um, we like to kind of use the term, and a lot of people use the term resilience. Uh, for uh, a way of of kind of um, protecting yourself against stress and promoting your health is that you, you like to think that um, in life, you know, sometimes things happen, stressors occur, uh, but you hope that you're a resilient person, right? I mean, I think right. that's, that's what we all want. And I think that's the real key here is that when you're able to forgive, and you're not just, we're not, I mean, the way we measured it in this study, we're not just talking about uh, somebody who once in a while can forgive, and they manage to muster up the strength to say, okay, that's all right. I'm just, yeah. These, these are people, the, the people that we studied are people that are consistently, they're not forgiving instances, they are forgiving people. They're, they're, they're like, they're, yeah, they're, they're Olympic forgive, they're, they're Olympic they, forgivers. Exactly, yeah. That's, they're great. That's, that's, great way to think about it and it's, it's so timely to, to think about it yeah they're like olympian forgivers they've, they've really honed their craft okay you know, lauren let's take a break i want to come back um and and have you talk sure. to us about how how we do that how do we become this olympic type of uh of a forgiver 
and really get skilled at, at letting things go. We're speaking with Dr. Lauren Toussaint from uh, Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. We'll be right back, folks, helping you uh, find the good in the world, and the good may be in forgiving. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Forgiveness, folks, it, uh, it's one of the hard things to do in this world, isn't it? To actually let stuff go. But according to our guest, Dr. Lauren Toussaint from um, Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, he's the associate director of the Sierra Leone Forgiveness Project and a consultant to the Mayo Clinic, the Department of Pastoral Care at Cancer Treatment Centers of America. And he has basically done a study proving or showing that there's a there's a correlation, folks. When people that are the most forgiving tend to have, uh, in his study, the the least amount of stress. Is that a, is that the proper way to 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 pose the or to formulate the the findings of the research, Lauren? Yeah, I, I think um, that's a good way to put it. That um, forgiving people they just suffer less from the effects of stress. That's a good way to say it. Mm. That's yeah. and it's. Seems obvious, right? But not so obvious. Um, I guess the hard part is how do we do it? What were some of the ways that you saw in these kind of Olympian strength forgivers, those that were really good at it? What do they do? What are some of the techniques that they use to forgive? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question because I think um, sometimes people get the sense that uh, it's it's just the way I am. Mm. You know, some people are more forgiving. Some people are less forgiving, and it's, sometimes it's easy to get defeated and feel like, well, I'm just not, you know, I, I hear people say things like, I'm just not a real forgiving person. And I cringe when I hear that, um, because, frankly, that's kind of like um, somebody saying, you know, well, I'm, I'm just not really a good walker, or I'm just not really a good talker. I mean, all of these things, or most all of these things in life that we take for granted, that we do well... Um, talking with one another, communicating, you know, getting around, doing the things that you need to do. We practiced all of that for years until we got really good at it and, mm. and, and got to a point where we almost, it's almost second nature. I mean, very few of us struggle for words when we're trying to tell somebody we're hungry or we need to, you know, use the bathroom. Right. Or, you know, these things come very natural to us. And and if you think back, or if you um, are around young children, you realize very quickly, wow, that didn't come natural um, initially. I had to work hard to, to figure this out. And um, I think that's the same thing with forgiveness, is, is that it's not the case that it's just you're one way or another. It's a skill like any other, but you have to be patient. You have to work very hard to refine that skill. And then, like anything, um, you know, if you get good at shooting a free throw, uh, but you walk away from it for ten years, you come back, you're yeah. probably going to hit. You're going to hit the rim. You're going to clank it off the rim several times because you're you kind of got rusty the skill. And so, that's the number one thing I think that people often, um, you know, kind of t- um, to say they maybe trip at the starting line is they they get they start to stumble and don't get much into the forgiveness process because they think that it's either an innate ability and they either have it 
or they don't. And so when things get tough, they just give up and say, well, I'll just have to that's, live with this pain. Yeah, that's how that's how it is. It is what it is. Is it how do I – because the pain, it seems like a lot – my brain would want to keep the pain there um, so that I don't get hurt again in the future. And so right. forgiveness is about almost preventing re-injury except yep. – so, so how do I get my brain that wants to kind of self-preserve to risk enough to just let it go? Yeah, and so you really hit the key there, and I, I would I would say um, my aim would be for people to have a pain-free memory of their offense. And I, I say that might sound kind of odd, but I, I want you to let go of the pain and the anger and the you know maybe the vengeance that you have toward the person who hurt you. I don't want you to forget what they did to you because yeah. If you, if you do that, you risk being hurt by these people again. And, and that, that's the forgive and forget, right? Everyone always says, if you forgive, you forget. But you're saying, you don't have to forget. You're not brain no. dead. Uh, you no, can remember, no. but but try to alleviate or eliminate the pain. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think um, the issue really becomes this cultural adage that we all toss around so flippantly. Um, forgive and forget is kind of a... In a way, it's kind of a ridiculous thing to assume that someone could do. If someone hurts you so bad that you're struggling to forgive them, do you really think you're ever going to forget it? Yeah, no way. I, I, I will hope not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's probably, as you say, it's probably not very adaptive. It's not very good for us as, as individuals if we forget these things. And that's why it's it's easy to remember them. But to try and purge the painful side of it, let go of those negative emotions, the negative thoughts that are really tying you down, um, and the way that we often encourage that is there's, there's kind of a, uh, you know, several key things here, but um, I'll, I'll say just a just a couple of them. Yeah, Lauren, um, we've only got about a minute and a half, so so give us give us your top two or whatever. Yeah, the top two would be um, you definitely want to find a way to defeat the um, physical effects of that anger, and that might be deep breathing or some kind of imagery. Um, the other thing you want to do is try to think about all those other good things. Um, things like empathy, humility, gratitude, those things are often kind uh, you know important building blocks mm. to help you get on your way to forgiveness, and they all kind of support one another. And so, uh, you know, kind of generally moving in that direction of positivity is a good thing. Because you have to turn off the you have to turn off the body, the physiology that wants to kind of keep producing pain, fear, yeah. fight or flight, and you yeah. also are saying turn your thought, your active thinking to more of a positive side. Look for the positive things that are also going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah. That's great. Well, I, you know what, Lauren, I appreciate the research because it's so easy to just kind of throw these ideas out there, but to ha- actually have research backing up that those that are really good at forgiving actually have less stress in their lives. I mean, that's that's pretty groundbreaking, I think. And uh, keep up the good work there. At, uh, at your university, at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, and we look forward to talking to you again someday. Yeah, I hope so. It's been great. Thank you, Matt. You bet. Dr. Lauren Toussaint, again, uh, wonderful work there on forgiveness. We all need it, don't we? And what a great skill to have for resiliency. That's one you could also teach your family as well. We'll take a break, come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world.
It's that time of the show, folks, where we get to go talk to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem, and we're going to find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Hello, gentlemen. What's up, Matt? How you doing? Good. Well, I'm just super excited to see that new Samuel L. Jackson movie. It's a good one. You know, he does a lot of snake movies. He really does. And I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you've read much about Samuel. He doesn't like the snakes. Nope. No, not at all. No. You know what? You know what's interesting? It's a fact. <laughs> what? My almost my almost two year old last night was uh, looking at pictures of uh, different types of snakes on the computer, mm-hmm. and was visibly unsettled because of it. Really, he does not like snakes. <gasps> Good. That's that means he's healthy. And I was like, wow, you're not even two. Like, and you already have this idea in your mind that you don't like snakes. Interesting. See, that's where an unloving father would like take him to a snake show and, you know, drape a snake on him. Well, and then we bring up all these other different animals, you know, like puppies and I mean they were baby snakes, things like that. He did not like it, but once we brought up the other babies, he was like, Oh, oh cute. So he has oh, a, that's yeah. his new favorite thing to say, Oh, cute. <laughs> he has a paternal yeah, instinct. <laughs> yeah, let's get away from that. <laughs> that's really good. Um, st- speaking of snakes, there's a game this week. Have you guys heard about it? I, I, in, I, indeed. And today is so it's so special that we are actually on remote. We're at Deseret First Credit Union south of campus. Oh, yeah. I love go. Hey, pick me up some uh, cut bop. Yeah, dude. It's right yeah. next to it. Yeah. We're, we're going to talk about why or why not will this year's game with Utah be different than the previous six. Ooh, good. We always lost. What are, what are the reasons for and against? Okay. We will yeah. discuss. Dennis Pitta will join us. Longtime uh, NFL player for the Baltimore Ravens. He's actually a broadcast for them a little bit. First four games, at least, of the season. Hmm. He'll tell us. What it's like coming off of a disappointing loss and then having to bounce back because the 08 team he was on had that whole quest for perfection thing. Yeah. yeah. And then they got beat by 25. <laughs> Almost the exact margin of yeah. the loss that BYU had against LSU. How did they pick themselves up after that? We'll ask him. That's a good, that's a good get. And, too, like, like how do you overcome mentally, you know, on the offense, that the inability to get it past the 50-yard line? Yeah. Well, That's, LSU knows all about that because Alabama did that to them in the 2011 National Championship game. Oh. I do want to bring this up, too. At Rival Flavin tweeted this. Utah in 07 lost 27 nothing to UNLV. The next year, they won the Sugar Bowl against Alabama. Oh, wow. So the, turn, the turnaround can happen quick for a yeah, program. Yeah, totally can. Uh, we'll talk to Micah Simon as well. He's a wide receiver on the uh, team. How will the offense... Snap out of it. Why, why is it going to be different this week for the offense? Jerem, that wide-angle lens you're looking at this through is, is blinding. Dude, I know, I you literally need to use have, tunnel vision. I have sunglasses on right now because the lights are so bright. <laughs> how how are you? See. You're not going to wear them during the show, are you? I might. I don't know. Really? You're going to be that guy? It's so – I can't see anything. You're going yeah. to be sunglasses guy mm-hmm. during he's, the he's show? Like the, call me, he's call the me Guy Patterson from that thing wow. you do. Wow. Oh. I, I think you guys could get away with it, though. Got to protect the eyes, right? Um, I got these really expensive glasses on too. I think I got it from Google Fiber for free or something. Wow! Yeah, those are are they branded? Are they branded Google Fiber? Yes. Yeah. And they have BYU I'm, store on the side, I think, or something. I'm sponsored. Oh yeah. 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 So cool. <laughs> a, a lot of a lot of really nice glasses come from um, Wi-Fi companies. Yeah. Said true. nobody. True ever. fact of truth. 
Fact it's like truth. Samuel Jackson and Snake totally. movies. Hey, has there been any a lot of times during this little rivalry week, one team or one player will say something that ends up making it to the bulletin board of the other team that becomes a big motivator. Have has anything been dropped that's that's you know ticked one team off or another? I haven't noticed. I haven't a heard thing. anything. Yeah. Is it kind of a boring I'll, I'll probably say something to do that though, just to spice it up. Yeah, well, maybe, I mean yeah. Max yeah. Hall Max Hall did come on the show and unsolicited yesterday. <laughs> we just said, Hey Max, welcome to the show and the first thing he said out of his mouth was, I hate Utah. Oh boy, we again. Like, <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. That's... When you want two of three, you can say that. Yeah. yeah. It's uh I mean this is the this is the week that I bet all the coaches are just telling everybody to be quiet, stay quiet. Calm, breathe. Just play. Just get out there. Just go play. Play also, your game. Utah's beaten BYU six times in a row, so just go play. It's time to end the streak. Yeah. You know, there, there's this kind of fear of failure uh, attitude associated with, with this game, I think, when, when the attitude probably should be this is an opportunity to end this and change it and start a new streak. If Kalani Stake wins Saturday and wins by you know more than a point or whatever, we're going to go, now wait a minute. Yeah. Kalani has changed things because there was a one-point loss. He went for two. He was aggressive. I don't blame him. And then he has a win. That, there'd be a different idea about this. But if BYU loses to Utah, and Spencer mentioned this yesterday on the show, Whew. top 10 Wisconsin's coming in next oh, week. Oh, yeah. This, this, this would not be good. Psychologically. Okay? would not be good. It would be very, very difficult to overcome a loss to Utah and beat Wisconsin. And BYU's offense needs to show up. They need to score some points. They need to score in the 20s. they got to discover who the running back is. Tanner Mangum's got to look like Tanner Mangum. I think BYU's defense can keep them in the game like they did last year. BYU had to force six turnovers to just be in a position where a two-point conversion was even possible. Yeah. Oh, it's a lot of pressure. That's the nature of high-level sports, baby. Yeah, baby. Yeah. And you, know, you know who doesn't have pressure? Utah State. No pressure. No pressure. Well, by the way, they do have some pressure because I don't know if you heard, they're going to be on Facebook live streaming. Yeah. Utah the, State? The, their games, two or three of their games oh, will be Idaho State live streamed on uh, oh. Facebook. It's a hey, test. It, hey, it's a lot cheaper than TV. Absolutely. <laughs> in, in, in many ways. Yeah. And, and what's great is my wife will finally watch football. Because it's on Facebook. Because it's on Facebook? Yeah. She's... yeah you bring up a valid Matt. point, which we have no time to talk about. Yeah, we'll get to it. Will, will different demographics be touched by going through Facebook? Yes, it definitely will. Yeah. Okay, so we'll talk about that tomorrow. Guys, I'll let you go. I know you got to go rock and roll, and you got to go somehow get your eyes adjusted to the lights and take those silly sunglasses off. Spencer and Jerem, uh, they're the gang, folks. BYU Sports Nation, in about six minutes, five and a half minutes from now, you'll be able to get into that conversation. You won't want to miss it. Uh, we do have just some other um, empty news we wanted to get to. Uh, Jeff, our empty news, um, what do we call him? Empty news anchor. Florida man loses his toddler as he drafts his foot, uh, fantasy football team. Yeah, hopefully you don't have any clients coming to you with this problem. No, no. Uh, 27-year-old Jesus Martinez uh, now faces a charge of child neglect after he was arrested by sheriff's deputies on Sunday, an arrest prompted by the discovery of a two-year-old toddler for whom Martinez was supposed to be caring alone in the street. Oh boy. But while losing track of a toddler may have, while losing track of a toddler may appear bad enough, the reason that Martinez gave the deputies made the case even more strange. What? And shocking. Martinez said that he simply lost track of the little girl as he was completing his fantasy football draft on his smartphone. Oh. 
Yeah, according to the report, the little guy was found by passersby and taken care of until the police arrived. But the big, I mean, the real question is, how did his team turn out? I mean, has he got a good team? Is Is it? Is that the real question? Hmm. How's the little girl? Fine. Fine. But uh, this guy's not fine. No. Jail time. (sighs) It's sad. What we do now, just to go play with a fake football league, you know, and the money, the money people are putting down on this stuff. Crazy. I mean, you got to watch your kids for heaven's sakes. Well, let's get to a happier story, a a, a hero story out of Tunica, Mississippi. 14-year-old saved his dad's life in a freak accident with the help of his two friends. This all happened Saturday as a family was trying to launch a boat in Tunica Lake when the dad's, uh, the teen's dad's head got pinned under a tire. Listen to this. These three teens are freshmen at Houston High School, but to Bob Staub, they're all heroes. They're great. They made a miracle happen. I'm telling you, I shouldn't be here today, said Staub, fighting back tears. Staub tells us he took his son Nick and his two friends to the lake to fish on Saturday as they were backing the truck trailer down the boat ramp. The truck got stuck in park. My dad has done it before. He went under the car and he got the car into neutral, And that made it then roll back because of the slope. That's when things took a turn for the worse. Once the car started rolling, Nick tells us his dad's head was about three inches from the wheel. It went right on his head, and his head was pinned between the concrete and the tire, said Nick Stop. He was under there for about 45 seconds. He almost passed out. Crazy stuff. It was really scary, the teen said. We pushed the car about five inches up the ramp, and we uh, and uh, then he ended up waking back up, and they were able to pull him out. CAT scans uh, show that uh, he will have a few bruises, but he seems to be doing all right. And those three young men saved his life. So they're the heroes of the day. Um, boy, oh boy. Don't ever underestimate the power and strength of a few teenagers Um, There's good, and there's good everywhere, folks. And there's hope everywhere, right? There are miracles, just as many uh, miracles out there as we we see all the negative stuff. That's the show, my friends. We'll be back again tomorrow. Uh, Join us then. BYU Sports Nation, it's up next.